historic weekend, no matter what happens. Training standards will, will increase, expectations will, in, will increase. I just, I, I couldn't, I just can't go against Ballyhale. The Club Championship Show. Subscribe to the GEA podcast feed on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. With Gillette, put your best face forward with our new and improved razors. All right, it's bang on half past seven. It's Thursday morning. It's Jared Owen with you all the way through until 10. We'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the YouTube stream. You can uh, tweet us at Off the Ball AM or you can get in touch with us however you want. 0879 180 180. That's the WhatsApp number. Owen, how are you? Very well, Jer. What's the crack? Well, uh, we were previewing the game with Phil Thompson yesterday and kind of were suggesting this has the, the bang of a routine away victory for Liverpool at this stage, which we shouldn't take for granted. They're going away to Inter and they're just beating them very casually with no significant doubts about the outcome. Maybe when the ball flashes off the upright, off the crossbar in the first half. Like, Inter did have chances, but it still felt like there's a really good team here and there's a good team, and the really good team is going to win over the two legs by probably two clear goals, so maybe it's a draw on the second leg, and maybe that's it. It's a routine, nice European night at Anfield in the second leg, but this ties over, right? I think so, and I think we sometimes underplay how good Liverpool are in a situation like this, given how casually they... It, or given how casually it looks now, a 2-0 win, granted there were a couple of heart attack moments for Liverpool fans last night, I suspect, but there is sort of a casual nature to how they managed to dispatch a team like Inter Milan, an excellent team on paper, in terms of form uh, this season. they got a very similar record to Liverpool, in fact, this season in, in, in their own league. So this was a brilliant team that, that Liverpool came up against last night and they come away with a 2-0 win and nobody's that surprised which is kind of saying something and the quality of subs that they're oh, able to bring in like, like a lot of a lot of yeah, clubs around and, and I'm talking about the top tier clubs around Europe at the moment must just be looking at what Liverpool have done in terms of recruitment and are just green with envy because the amount of hits that they've had means that when they get into a five substitution game the players they can bring off the bench are absolutely Outrageous! Like I mean, Luis Diaz has been. Uh, it seems already like an, an excellent signing to bring himself. Henderson, Firmino, Keita, Milner off the bench. It's not a bad collection of people to be bringing on. And if you're hanging on by your fingernails against Liverpool, you know that they're just going to knock you off the cliff once those lads come on. Yeah. Shot injury might be a bit of an, an, an issue, but assuming that's nothing too bad, this squad is one that can definitely challenge on both fronts. It definitely feels like they're built for the the long haul here as well. There's no sign, no no chatter even of Klopp being burnt out or any of that kind of stuff. It feels like he's totally into it. It kind of feels like there's been a little bit of a renewal almost last season and having a bad year just kind of washed the dirty petrol out. Whereas with Manchester City, there's this sort of like relentless, exhausting nature to the whole thing because they can't afford to have one of those seasons. You can't have uh, two-star Michelin dinner every night, but Pepe is literally gorging like a foie gras at the moment on football. I win every game 5-0 and my liver's getting increasingly bloated. How how can you possibly enjoy that? Yeah, like I I, I would be curious to see how Liverpool, (laughs) how they get on maybe against a, a team with... With with a pacier version of Edin Dzeko up front, or, well, or, they, you know, I was talking. We're going to talk about this on um, the football kickoff on, on Friday morning at half past ten. That's your plug. Uh, Phil was making the point that the high line that Liverpool play is such a high line that loads of goals get scored against them that are then offside. And when you're watching the game, you can feel like this game is much closer than it is because it's never a goal; it's offside. Like they, they, he was, he had the stats for how many times Liverpool have caught teams offside, and it's like thirty or forty times, maybe even more. Was it a hundred and something versus sixty or seventy ahead of the next best team? Right. And the next best team is Manchester City. 
So, like, they have perfected this. It feels very high wire. And the one thing you would concern yourself about mostly is that, like, the the flag goes up um, five seconds afterwards. So the goal gets scored, the flag goes up, and everybody goes, oh, great, grand. And it's going to get caught by VAR anyway. But what if the flag doesn't go up in a, in a, in a final? You know, if there's a final where they're like, let the players play, where these decisions get made, and it's it's fringy, because mm. it's fringy enough sometimes where, you know, you don't actually see the, the megapixel where the ball gets kicked, where the contact is made with the ball. Like, we haven't yet got the technology going, no, there's clear daylight between the foot and the ball, and that's the point where the ball is kicked. Or is it when the ball leaves the foot? I don't know, actually, that's a good question. I, I mean, there, there was definitely some attempts to clarify that over the last little while, wasn't there? But, but it's I, like, I it's it, you know, there's there's like a split second where that happens. Yeah. I, I just think it's... A, I think the players know when they're in that situation, though, right? I think Van Dijk and Kanate, who were excellent last night, I think that they probably have this understanding where it's like, we know that this is a bit of a higher wire act. We know that the chances are that the flag is just going to go up late. We have to play as if this guy's onside. Now, thankfully, it was Edin Dzeko last night who was the guy who was offside. And even if he was onside, well, no, what am I talking about? He put the ball in the back of the net. So he didn't get caught. But if he was onside, maybe he would have got caught. He would have certainly had less of a yard of a head start. Yeah. Um, I, I just think that a, a speedier counter-attacking team is, is the only way that this Liverpool team gets gets beaten I, I think it is it, it's their Achilles heel but it's it's necessary Achilles heel well, I forget who had the cross for uh, Martin, Lattaro Martinez Jalnalu is it? Is it Perisic? Uh, well so the ball comes from the, the, the it comes from a short kick out the Liverpool, oh, yeah. Liverpool are pressing and it goes the length of the field and they Inter did manage to play through the press and they would have scored one of the great Champions League goals if um, if it had been half a foot either side if my granny had balls I know but other teams will have balls and other teams your auntie will be your uncle <laughs> you know uh, other teams might it just it, and I guess that's why it's so bloody good to watch right it's because Liverpool will give you chances there's, yeah there's, there's a bit of jeopardy about it even though like 2-0 to Liverpool last night would have been maybe what, what some people would have seen coming like PSG Liverpool is what we want to see. Like we, we mentioned it yesterday in the show, we haven't had them go head to head and knock out Champions League football. And it's you take Messi out of it, and I would still be as excited ah. as as I would possibly be. That that's the tie that we want to see. Can I ask you right? So the the other score was coming through last night, and it was one nil for ages and ages and ages and ages. Mm. I definitely felt a little frisson of excitement, which goes against everything we were saying yesterday. Yeah. Whereas like whatever happens, don't let any of the big teams crash out. But if it's Bayern Munich crashing out to Salzburg, I'm probably okay with that. Yeah, I'm probably okay with Salzburg yeah. being a gimme for one of the super clubs in the next round just to see what would have happened the absolute conflagration in Munich like yeah, on fire everything on fire the Allianz Arena turned red in shame done by Red Bull of all people <laughs> like it would have been amazing uh, I'm not I'm not with you on that sorry I, I want I, I'm I will gorge you're talking about Fogra I, I want to gorge on this for a little bit longer my, my disgusting capitalist dinner on a Wednesday night I need that to involve dipped in gold dipped in gold I need that to like I, I guess the irony there is I'm rooting against Red Bull who of course wouldn't just be dipping anything in gold but uh, like, I mean, you, except you, the gold you, in their bank you do of course at the moment at the time think this would, this would be great this would be interesting to see Bayern Munich dumped out and then you realise the consequences of that and that would be another great tie for, for us to see would be Bayern Munich against Liverpool Bayern Munich against Manchester City would be but that's the thing like, I mean, they're, they're, they're the ones you want to see not Salzburg with all due respect even though they are a club who've got like a Russian doll 
of Julian Nagelsmann going on. It's like, oh, who is this guy, this new 32-year-old who is trendy and uh, very good at football management? And next year they'll have another guy who is called, I don't know, uh, Nagelsmann 4.0 or Klopp 6.0 or something like that. Uh, I just is the manager of uh, Salzburg. Yeah, he's a new guy and uh, he is also 33, I think. uh, Um, They basically played... uh, 3-7 3-7 last night well maybe it's 3-2-5 they were definitely very attacking uh, Bayern Munich and it didn't work for them but I, look that's the point when it was 1-0 you're like and then when it was 1-0 you're like okay fair enough Salzburg have had their fun mm. Europe has been uh, excited by this momentarily but Bayern Munich have gone through and like it's really boring that all the best teams all the same teams make it every year to the quarterfinals and semifinals and finals but also the product that they serve up when they get there is the best product we've ever seen yeah, this is like this is football has honed off all of the doubts by making sure that um, the Super League exists and everything but bad midweek fixtures to the point where we know really what's going to happen over the next mostly with the exception I suppose Man United and Atletico Madrid yeah. although we should know what's going to happen there Atletico should take care of business because Manchester United are not very good at the moment like if, if we're overreacting to the recent trends in Champions League you have to say that once Manchester United sort their uh, case out which could be a while yet and Barcelona get back on stream you could have an even more concrete version of what we have now this this coterie of super teams yeah. Barcelona playing Napoli tonight in uh, the Europa League Europa it's League. Europa League yeah. okay yeah um, that tournament that uh, Brendan Rodgers doesn't know anything about that he's playing in tonight yeah. very important to him because it might be their last route to Europe this season uh, right the other thing it's 7.39 this morning Mark Lawrence is going to join us in about 10 minutes to talk to us about Liverpool and we'll talk to him too about Antonio Conte who has spoken to Sky Italia? We'll just we'll we'll you can wait and we'll we'll get you the comments, the specific comments. The full interview airs tonight, but you know, like uh, like the good marketing company that they are, Sky Italia, have already released some of the most sensational bits, and they are pretty sensational. If you're a Spurs fan this morning, you're puking, going, "Oh, he's told us the truth. We didn't need we needed him not to tell us the truth. He's told us the truth." Blah. Maybe it's a necessary truth. You should you should put on a Google alert in your phone, Spurs fans, for Sky Italia. And whenever that Google alert goes off, you know bad things are about to happen. Absolutely. Uh, right. The other thing that's happened in the last 24 hours is that the, this time yesterday, it was like, oh, great news for uh, Southern Hemisphere rugby. South Africa is staying. So this is fantastic. And then the reports kind of started to read what had happened. It was like, they've agreed short term, they're going to stay for another year or two, but that's it. Like, that's... It's, um, it's very... Um, I I, look, the, the rugby politics, the people involved in the top level of rugby politics, they're such wonderful people, such stand-up people that, um, you know, such an enjoyable group of people to spend time following and reading and uh, uh, of all of the alikadoos, it, it seems that the, the backstabbing and shenanigans that goes on at the level, the top level of world rugby is the worst. It's like, it's like the... It's like the House of Lords Tory party trying to organise their summer piss-up. That's what it feels like. <laughs> that's the level of competency that there seems to be. Really? In trying to, that's what it, if you, like, look at how all the World Cup bids work and look, at how, yeah. just, and look at how the law changes work and look at the player welfare. Oh, we're, oh, we're big at player, player welfare. welfare. It's the most important thing for us. Um, but that whole... That, and Sorry, I'm not talking specifically about the organisation world rugby. I'm talking about the people who run all of the rugby in the world. I just they're like I would say singularly the most unimpressive group of sports <laughs> administrators, and you can you can 
you can put your own county board up against them and I'd say they come out going Whew, we're, I'm, glad, I'm glad we have this debt ridden albatross around our neck at least it's our debt ridden albatross <laughs> uh, but anyway so I don't know what's going on with this South Africa yesterday reported was like they were oh, we're, we're part of the Southern Hemisphere crew and then today in the papers like South Africa are basically like one foot already in the six nations which would then be seven nations or would it be six nations who knows yeah it's, it's like very much a South Africa commit to 2025 and also South Africa commit to 2025 and there is like a definitely two different tones in the newspapers this morning as well people taking the same piece of information and uh, looking at it positively and that same piece of information saying this is not good news so that South Africa move that let's face it is going to happen at some point something's going to happen with South Africa maybe into the Six Nations in 2025 is going to affect things drastically and this is allied with the World Nations Championship which is back on our table. So you will explain the World Nations Championship. You will remember this from uh, things such as 2019, the pre-COVID world. Flashbacks to Kevin Kilban here, but let's go. This will be very Kevin Kilban because and it's not even my fault. Hey okay? Kev. It's not even my fault. It is because there is a lot of grey area around this already. So the World Nations Championship is essentially rugby's attempt to create a Nations League because the, nation, the point of the Nations League was to turn friendlies into more meaningful matches the World Nations Championship are whispering the November friendlies are actually just friendlies they're not tests that's what they are saying here that is the admission here well, they want these games to count for something they're, they're recalibrating the, the uh, definition of the word test they're updating it updating it test 2.0 no recalibrating was good that's, that's a very corporate sounding word so they're, they're recalibrating uh, what, what this would involve is a tournament of uh, two divisions uh, 12 teams in the tournament and it would take place every second year you would have in one of the two divisions the six nations and then the other division uh, would be sorry not one of the two the top one the top tier the top tier we are, we are tier one nation tier, tier, tier one we are, we are the kings yes uh, but that, that, that would <laughs> that would be that would be in one sorry, that was my, my snout in the trough one section and then uh, the other section would be uh, Sanzar uh, which still includes South Africa. It's now Sanzar. Sorry, you see yeah, that? that's what I tried to do. That's what I tried to do, but clearly wasn't. I was like, oh, okay, they've just added shoehorned in an extra A. Like, I mean, it would have been worse if it was like Fiji. What would they've done with that? Sanzar for <laughs> for but Fiji are in, Japan are in, supposedly uh, to make up the rest of the twelve. So you've got your Six Nations, the, the four from the, the Southern Hemisphere in the Rugby Championship, and then supposedly Fiji and Japan. That has yet to be ironed out what would happen is that you would still have your summer tour to the Southern Hemisphere but instead of going to New Zealand and playing three tests in New Zealand you would play three tests against three different nations so you would Give me an example of those You could go from New Zealand to Australia to Fiji you could go from New Zealand to Japan to South Africa Argentina to Australia to South Africa Argentina to Fiji flights What are we talking? Two stop flights Five, okay. five grand. Five grand, okay. Seven grand from Rosario. From Buenos Aires, though, it's only five and a half grand. I know. Well, you get a good sponsor, though, right? Uh, well, I think certain airlines are like, happy days. This is... Uh, so, um, what, what's the distance? I mean, I'm just... I'm, I'm sorry. I'm busy scrolling out on the map here to see just how, how easy it is. Oh, you go the other side. You go there. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's actually not... That's not the worst one. When you're weighing up what direction of the planet you're going to take, it probably is a long enough flight. Uh, yeah, it seems to be. Basically, there's going to be a lot of air miles, a lot of travelling if this thing happens, especially in the summertime. The November window... They're saying you fly through Madrid or New York. <clears throat> well, that would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? I mean, that, that would definitely uh, make this whole thing worth it. 
That can't be right. The world is a big place, it turns out. There must be a mistake. The Southern Hemisphere is not as tiny as it looks on the maps, is uh, is this morning's geography lesson. So that would be part of of this, that you would have those those three matches in the summertime, but against three different nations, and then you would have your November test, which would obviously be at home in the sort of traditional manner in, in which they're currently played, except it will go towards points for this... World Nations Championship and then the top team in one of the division would play the top team in the other division in a grand final uh, at the end of November every second year and that would be your World Nation Champion. So this has been on the table before. There's been a couple of things that have really set it back. First of all is the idea of promotion relegation. And this is for me where I get into the really confusing area because this whole thing is predicated, predicated on the idea of the Six Nations being in Europe, if you suddenly have South Africa replacing Italy, do they then move out of the rugby championship cycle, not out of the rugby championship cycle, the Southern Hemisphere cycle, which would involve Northern Hemisphere teams moving down to the South, do they move out of that and then do you have to find somebody else to move into that, aka a Tonga or maybe even a, a USA? That I don't know and I, I want to know how that actually factors in because this... this USA is a Northern Hemisphere team. Exactly, exactly, but they're not a Six Nations team, therefore they're in this other division which makes relative sense because it's sort of, Japan's not a Northern, Northern Hemisphere team, let's not forget. Uh, so, or it's not a Southern Hemisphere team. So, whatever way you look at this, this is based quite a lot on geography. And it does get, I guess, it gi- it's given a bit of a foundation by the fact that in one division you have the Six Nations teams all in Europe and in the other tier you, you largely have Southern Hemisphere teams, the traditional rugby championship nations. So you can mould something around that. But if you take Italy out of one and you put South Africa in there and then all of a sudden you've got another team put into the, to the second batch of six, things get muddied very easily here and all of a sudden... So South Africa can't move. You've got to bribe them not to move. Uh, like, that, that would be the only way you could, you could do this. And then the Six Nations are stuck with Italy, you would suggest. Well, that, or Maybe that, they could be incentivised to help Italian rugby as opposed to just shitting on it and taking their money. Or else they do a promotion relegation situation based on geography where the bottom team in that pool of six teams in the Northern Hemisphere would, would, would go into a playoff against USA or Georgia or whoever it may be. And if they lose that playoff they get relegated and that team comes up to the, to the top tier of the World Nations Championship. So that promotion relegation thing is going to be a factor in this. It, it's not going to be ring-fenced because that is the reason why this fell down a couple of years ago. One of the other reasons why it fell down was because of player welfare. You know, and Farrell coming out a couple of years ago saying that this was not going to be good for player welfare. Like, this doesn't, <laughs> this does not look any better for player welfare at the end of it. Not least because you're going to try and squeeze in an extra November weekend for this final. So you, you've got your regular window and then a final on top of that. Clubs are not going to go for that, are they? They're not going to allow their players away for, for any longer than they are. You're going to have a, a Lions Summer, World Cup, uh, warm-up summer. You're going to have uh, your World Nations Championship Summer. The rugby calendar is already chaotically packed. This will just add more madness to it. I think the idea behind it is is to make these international windows more meaningful, and I like that. But to actually make this happen, you would like to think that it would take a complete rethink of the rugby calendar rather than layering more I was going to say crap because some of the ideas are good but layering more stuff on top of an already pretty complicated situation uh, Buenos Aires to Tokyo is pretty difficult to do uh, the first one that came up was um, through Sao Paulo and then through New York and then New York to Narita and then there is like one I guess you just hire you just get a you have to charter planes that can fly direct can you fly is that the, I mean you can't obviously unless everybody goes to the one location 
and, and all the games are played there but like that's very Cup. like a World Cup you know that's you can't be doing that then so I don't know does it devalue the World Cup having this well no does anybody care about this hey we're the champions of this thing which started three years ago yeah hey well we had a final which we won well, I guess it's extra silverware you know I mean they they managed to turn the European Cup into something pretty quickly yeah I, I would argue that people already care about the summer and November tests well, it, so it, you're all of a sudden adding but a, you're never going to have a three test tour to New Zealand ever again yeah okay so the, the, the touring element does get devalued a little bit I wonder would the Lions the people who run the British and Irish Lions be a little bit concerned about this as well where you're like are, are you poisoning the idea of, of the test culture in rugby or which maybe, the Lions are, are based on maybe you're the only one that's left and so therefore it seems amazing like that's the other thing is that and we're, there's never going to be a Lions versus Argentina or a Lions versus Japan test series I mean I say never right who knows if the needs most money will money will talk but um, just what about a sustainable the, the big brands like sustainability the CO2 emissions that are coming up on my Google flights here are like 2,700 kilos per person that is a, a lot uh, that's a big number well when you add in like the amount of players that you're going to re- require for this three test series in two different hemispheres mm. over a three week period I mean uh, you're going to need like 60 players maybe you send one team to Argentina and another team to it, I, I mean I, I get that rugby is screwed I, I understand it I understand why it's screwed um, but this seems to be trying to fix a problem that doesn't really need fixed does it but what they need is that everybody plays the same calendar so when they're playing we're playing and when they're not playing we're not playing and so when the World Cup happens everybody's on an equal footing and that the test series seems to work quite well doesn't it mm. mostly but like, I, I, and I think to be fair that is why they're trying to create this because they feel that they have a situation that they there, there are allowances made for those tests and they, they're pretty good as they stand. How do you incentivize them further? I do think the level of travel in the summer will be outrageous, even from a, just a player welfare standpoint. Like, Daniel Schofield in The Telegraph makes the point that Roby just needs to tear the whole thing up and start again. But that's not going to happen. So this actually isn't a, a, as bad a scenario as, as you might think that if you, you realise that you're going to just have to add something on, this, this isn't the worst city in the world. Andrew Garrity says, any love for Georgia in the Six Nations? Supposed to be a great trip, like that would it would no no doubt be a great trip. But like my concern about Georgia is that we've seen good moments from them over the last few years. Maybe wasn't it that autumn tournament that Ireland played in twenty twenty against them, and there was a little bit of a scare in that game. But if you if they come up against Six Nations teams in Six Nations form, really going hell for leather on it, you fear that they'd have the same fate as Italy. Yeah, I mean Georgia and Italy should have the opportunity to inter. Intermix like one year, one year, one year, one year, and then maybe one of them might get good after a period of time. Uh, John Claffey says rugby should go with Plan B. I think they, I mean, Plan B seems to work for everybody. A little, a little local based league, which actually is the uh, be all and end all. That's a good idea. Um, we need to keep the summer tours as they are, says James McCullough. Previously, we did a test in New Zealand and then a test in Australia. We used to get smashed as we didn't have time to get over jet lag before we played. Um, they were, they were like a good opportunity for us to see how we were doing versus the and when when New Zealand come and they do the four tests and try and do a grand slam like that's class like that is that there's there's something about that France always feel a little bit left out but um, maybe we could 
kick one of the other teams out. No, and then occasionally we kicked out ourselves. Screw France. I mean, okay, yeah, fair enough. Never give a sucker an even break. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that that's the crack with that. I, you did a very good explaining there. I haven't a clue what's going on. <laughs> Neither do I. I, I the, yeah, it's um, the the meme of the dog at the computer being like, I have no idea what I'm doing. That that is uh, me trying to look at this. That is us this morning. Yeah. Okay. If you want to get in touch with us, oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number. We're going to speak with Mark Lawrence in, in just a couple of minutes' time. Uh, OTBM is brought to you by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette. Put your best face forward. Their new and improved razors. We're going to talk about the League of Ireland now. Uh, Mark Lawrence and coming ten past eight. Sports pages at eight thirty. We'll talk to John Duggan about Antonio Conte and the latest coming from the Saudi Golf League, where it seems like some big fish are about to be landed by the massive, massive obscene amounts of money that are being thrown out there uh, Six Nations team of the tournament from Stephen Kisby Green uh, at 8.50 Paul Durkin not the poet at 10 past 9 and Gordon Darcy at half 9 Paul Durkin's going to talk to us about the Sigerson, which NUIG won for the 23rd time last night I would have no clue of the role of honour of the Sigersons if you were to if you were to do a pass the parcel round about the Sigersons I'd run out after about 6 yeah, uh, you look at you like oh, I should do that, shouldn't I? That should is a very that. good idea. Uh, I'm not sure if I've done that one already. Like, but I guess it, does that play into the idea that when you get asked for any role of honour except for like all Ireland titles for hurling football, it's hard to actually list them off anyway. It comes back to the whole idea of statistics and record keeping. Nighy. What? Yeah, that was a college in Limerick, I think. Oh, it's like what? Uh, Nighe. Nighy. That was that not just the old? Was that not the old DCU? I don't know. I don't know. Nahi Limerick, I'm right. Uh, there was a Nahi Dublin. Yeah, I think that just became DCU after a while. So Nahi uh, are what? UL. Are you? Oh, they became UL. All right, interesting. You do, really do learn something new every day. Um, so I'm not sure you learned anything there. On <laughs> they've gone level with UCC. It turns out in UIG. Uh, so they're bottom twenty three. UCC on, on twenty three and UCD with the most wins on thirty four. The powerhouse. Uh, Mixer on YouTube has been in touch to say Alison with that heart in the mouth moment playing out from the back with nowhere to go just get the ball up the pitch that's your inner GAA coming out in you there Mixer um, Inter had a moment like that where it looked like the press was going to get them but the press didn't get them and they played out through the press and they nearly scored down the other end uh, this is something that's coming up in Gaelic football at the moment and we'll talk with Paul Durkin the Donegal goalkeeper ex-Donegal goalkeeper about this about um, innovation for innovation's sake, there's a there's a belief out there that it's bad. I'm all in favour of this. I think this is good. I think that like, oh, teams can't do it. But how do you learn to do it if you don't screw it up? Now is the time to be screwing it up. Like, are we are we saying that Cluxton never made a mistake in a league game? Well, I mean, he never played league games for the last ten de- ten years. But what you know what I mean? That he didn't have periods where this went really badly wrong. Or are we saying Roy Began never screwed up? Of course he did, loads of times. But what happens is he gets better and better at it. How do you get good at it without practicing? Like I mean, one of the moments of that game when Tyrone got hammered in Clarny last year was Niall Morgan getting lobbed when he came out of goal. And Niall Morgan ended up being the keeper, the best keeper in the country at the end of the year. And part of that was coming out of goals, helping out in the opposition kick-out. By its very nature, it will be harsh in the mouth stuff because your goal is left vacated and that in our subconscious is not a good thing to see. But by extension of that then it also leads to added opportunities further up the field and I would say that the cost of it or the potential risk of it actually isn't that high it, it is uh, it, it is a very infrequent moment where and when around. you do get caught out the benefits over the course of the game probably are bigger than being caught out in that one moment it's whether or not your team goes oh, yeah, I told you it was going to happen uh. 
which you know that's a very Irish thing to do after timing negatively it's like yeah we're we're world champs at that but like everybody no hang on a second we've already we've stopped them scoring already in this game so that one moment of genius from this person who has found this tiny little pocket of space like high end stuff anyway uh, right uh, let's bring in some of this so uh, yesterday the um, press conference yesterday for uh, Damien Duff and Talker Park it's his managerial debut against St. Pat's this week so a lot of focus and a lot of attention a lot of excitement I think in League of Ireland circles or certainly the, the casual fan is paying attention to what's going on with Duffer particularly because of the back and forth with Johnny Ward last week so here he is talking with uh, Ashley O'Reilly enjoy this Damien your first senior management role how are you finding it so far? Um, yeah, I guess in a strange way it's enjoyable. Um, it's just 24-7 really. Um, I'm wrecked, if I'd be brutally honest. But uh, listen, it's been a long time coming. I think I'm in the gig eight, ten weeks, maybe more. And uh, Friday will be on us soon, so looking forward to it. And how has the training been with the lads? Is their fitness up to standard? Um, I hope so, yeah. Um, listen, we've worked them hard, all with the ball. I believe you can get fitter than ever with the ball rather than just running people so that's the way we train um, like I said I hope they've enjoyed it um, I think they know the way we want to play and uh, so we see how it all unfolds on Friday night and beyond And how has the recruitment process been for you? How involved have you been in it? Oh it's not like England where we've scouts all around the country and Europe and, and this and that head scouts, chief scouts, it's just myself and the staff so um, yeah, just I guess more or less spent the last two, three months on Y Scout, watching a million and one games, speaking to a lot of players. Uh, a lot of players telling me no, a few players telling me yeah. And uh, listen, we finally got there. Everyone's in the house, uh, full squad of players, fit, healthy, mostly young players, and uh, raring to go. Was that tough, that side of things? Um, yeah, in a strange way, it's probably the toughest, most time-consuming thing I've ever done in my life um, and then I guess it comes near the start of the season maybe you haven't got a striker in or a certain position you get a bit rattled but um, I heard a lot, a lot of people telling me just trust that you'll get them you'll get them and listen we did in the end so I'm more than happy with the squad they're, they're brilliant and very exciting and we love working with them every day and you've worked under some massive managers how would you describe your management style oh I don't know um I guess probably hands-on, too hands-on. I need to get better at delegating. I just stick my oar into everything, whether it be Gavin with social media, telling him how to do his job, the medical side, everything. So I guess I'm young, enthusiastic, but I just need to calm down. So, um, yeah, listen, it's just emotion, love of the game. It's the way I was as a footballer, and I guess I'm the same as a coach. And I'd just like to mention Celtic as well, if that's okay. I spoke with Neil Lennon recently. He mentioned just how well thought of you were at the club. How tough was it to leave and how would you sum up your time there? Well, that's very flattering coming from the gaffer. Um, listen, I love my time there. It's for any Irish man that loves football to go over there and play. Firstly, never got that. So then to go and coach was a special, special time. Won a lot of trophies, not that I contributed to... Um, any of the, the magic but uh, yeah, it was just a, a special club um, but listen family's more important so when your wife and your kids are back here um, you know my son for the first year was saying daddy stay for 9 and 10 but when we got to 9 he's like no daddy when are you coming home so it changes the dynamic of things so yeah of course I was I was going to come home then from a professional point of view it was a, the hardest decision ever it was I guess gut wrenching but for 
a family point of view, it's, it was an easy decision. And just for on Friday night, how big of a moment is this for you? How would you sum it up in terms of career, life? How big of a moment is it? Um, I guess uh, outside of family occasions, kids being born, etc., it's probably probably the biggest day of my life, I guess. You can say, yeah, making your debut for, for Ireland, Chelsea, whatever, winning leagues, but... That's the way I view it at the minute. Maybe it's just because it's fresh and in my mind now. But uh, yeah, I guess there's just so much more responsibility on you now as a manager. A lot of people rely on you. So uh, without doubt, the biggest day of my life, yeah. And Shelburne, it's a giant, not a sleeping giant. <laughs> uh, yeah, listen, people have uh, cross-checked me three months ago. I think I call it a sleeping giant. But I just think the words, or sorry, the work that's gone on behind the scenes... Um, I think it's wrong to call that, so that's why I corrected Johnny the other day. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. For me, it's a joint with club, Tolka, the name, the history, the trophies it's won. doesn't guarantee you success now, but I just thought it's good. Um, it wasn't me saying it for, you know, act the big man or tell let the rest of the league know we're here. Not at all. It was for the players because I want to put pressure on them. I want them to know how big the jersey is that they're wearing. So, listen, that was the only reason it was said. Not to, you know, annoy people or prod people. It was for our dressing room, the Shelburne dressing room, nobody else. That's pretty good. Yeah. Duffer, Duffer's a, he's, he's winning people <laughs> over. Oh, like, I mean, yeah, if nothing else, I just, just hope that the, the interviews keep coming over the, the next little while. It's... Um, Nothing like I mean, do, do giants not sleep? Are they not allowed to go for a little kip sometimes? It's a woke giant now. Okay, yes. Uh, I, look, I, I mean, that was that was excellent. I think um, I really hope that it works out. He's turned over the squad massively, and so best of luck. I think as well. The other thing is that like a load of his contemporaries could work in the League of Ireland, and if they were to start working in the League of Ireland, the attention would. You know, if if Robbie was to join, if some of the other if the, of that crew were to come and start working, then immediately the attention would get more, the fans' numbers would increase, the amount of money in the game would increase, the TV would increase. It's like they actually have incredible power to help fix football in Ireland. And I think fair play to him for getting up off his ass and doing it and going out there and taking the risk because, as we know, Ireland's a country of begrudgers and as soon as anything goes wrong, they're like, ah, 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 sleeping giant, you're knocked out, what? You know, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, right, Shell versus Pats on Friday night. Dundalk versus Derry. Rowers versus UCD. Sligo Rowers versus Bowes. Fianna Hart versus Drada. That's this weekend's fixtures. Um, and make sure you're on Twitter Spaces in the immediate aftermath of the games on Friday. Nathan, Johnny, and uh, Shane Keegan are going to be on talking about the night's games with people who are at the matches. So uh, it's our first adventure in that, and uh, second, obviously, we tried it last weekend, but uh, we're telling you about it this week. Right. So let's also hear from former Irish Olympian Rob Hefford and his son Carl has recently signed for AC Milan. Here's Rob talking about the influence Stephen Ireland had on that move. Stephen Ireland is is his agent. Me and Stephen became really good friends over the last two years and he is a, he's a young fella, a year older than Cahill and Stephen made mistakes in his own career which I think he's after learning now after he's maturing that he doesn't want players to go through what he went through and as a dad and as a person who's really, really talented and you know maybe if he had a little bit of guidance when he was younger he'd have had an, an incredible career and lovely guy and I got to meet him and then Stephen had contacts away so he would know agents in Italy and in Germany and 
and then when Cahill's playing internationally then you've all of the agents at the games and they're looking so there's not this big mystery if you're like he's captain of Ireland yeah. and the Irish coaches are brilliant so when you're away and playing them games they basically it's like uh, it's like stocks and shares for the agents so oh I'll have a look at him I'll have a look at him and I'll have a look at him and you're, you're a commodity like mm-hmm. so you have to go in then on the trial and just know that and go in and impress and do your best and if it doesn't come off just go back and do better the next time you know and is it sort of hard to navigate then in Ireland what way to go what path unless you as you said you had Stephen to sort of guide you can it be hard to know what to be doing here what's because I I, we were very lucky obviously because we were in sport all our life and we know like you take away the bells and whistles that come with football and the cares and the money and people getting obsessed and the egos sport is sport Mm. so when when I had agents so many agents ringing me and I'd be laughing like I said Carl's fine He's in a good place in Cork City, really good coaches there now, really good coaches at Ireland. And if he keeps developing, these things will open up naturally. Whereas at the start, they think people can get so excited up, they're looking at my son and they're looking at the allure of, oh, he could have a huge, and, and you could just be cast aside just as quick. So I think for us, the main thing is like going when he was going through these steps that he was enjoying it and he was developing and he was getting better. And um, you have to let it happen naturally. And then even we sent him over to Stephen two years ago when he was 14. And he stayed, he went to go, he went for a week. Then he went back another time and he stayed for five weeks. Stephen exposed him to all of that. So you do have to be careful. A natural progression. So, and then he went to, he was in trials of Man United, Celtic, he was in Burnley. And then there was a couple of things, a couple of upsets as well. He's yeah. like going, do you know, that's life, guys, yeah. the way it goes. It doesn't matter, like... Sure, you didn't walk straight into your job, or people, you know, that there's there's always heartache, and I think you need to let them know that. And, and I think you're, you're exposed to some of it, and you come back and say, Okay, what did you do good? What feedback did you get? How, how are you going to get better? What do you want to get better? Did you really want this life? It's hard, like that's Rob Heffernan talking about his son there with Ashton Riley. Next one here, the Irish women's national team were in action yesterday in the Pintar Cup. They were trading 1-0 to Poland but came back to win 2-1 thanks to goals from Lucy Quinn and Louise Quinn. Ireland faced Russia in the semi-finals of the eight-team tournament on Saturday. Uh, Poland ranked above Ireland at the moment in the world rankings, by the way, so a good win for Vera Powell's team. Here's Louise Quinn talking about Ireland's chances. Everything, every game is... Um you know, extremely important for our for our development, for our confidence, for you know, to push on in the World Cup and we're we're taking advantage of every every bit of it. Um and it's there, it's even it's a competition there that we can go and win as well. Um and just and just always compete. And I think yeah, we just we also just went into it with, with no fear. Um, you know, trying a new different couple of things and um and just just to kind of go and play with that freedom and play with the you know, if if mistakes happen, they happen, and you know maybe this is the place to do it. But then it also lets you play with freedom, and, and you could see that then in the game. Roll on Saturday. Absolutely, can't we? Louise Quinn there talking after a 2-1 win for Ireland against Poland yesterday. A reminder, OTBAM brought to you by Gillette. Good morning, start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with their new and improved razors. We're talking to Mark Lawrence next. OTB. Bang on ten past eight this Thursday morning, and I'm delighted to say Mark Lawrence is with us. Mark, good morning to you. How are you? I'm all good, thank you. You? Yeah, pretty good. Um, yesterday, when we were previewing this game, we had uh, your former mucker, Phil Thompson, on, and we kind of actually more talked about the historical uh, significance of games at the San Siro for Liverpool than previewing this game, because it felt like it was going to be a routine victory for Liverpool. And I just talking about it earlier, we, we take it for granted a little bit just how amazing this Liverpool team are, where they go to the San Siro, they win 2-0, and it's kind of no big deal. 
Yeah. And didn't really play particularly well, but obviously defended extremely well. It's just the expectation levels as well. But I think uh, the first time in since Klopp's been there, it's he's got everybody fit. Maybe Joe Gomez is still carrying a knock and he's not around. But all, all of the other players that he's got a chance to pick from, they're all, they're all fit and ready. Obviously, Jota got injured yesterday, so it, it remains to be seen what's happening to him. But that's unusual in football. Uh, even, you know, these, these teams with big squads, you normally like one or two missing at the very least. But he's now got an embarrassment of riches. Uh, I thought Canati was outstanding last night as well for him. So that's another problem. Does he bring Matic back for, at the weekend? He's got lots of problems, but his problems are selection problems in a good way, not in a bad way. I think oh, the, the other thing that we're seeing is the Thiago signing, there was a bit of a handbrake on it because of injury, because of COVID, because of a bunch of different reasons and the players around him. Now you can see that he can bring Thiago on to change the shape of the game, to change what the team are trying to do. So it gives him mm. an in-game opportunity to, to be a completely different team in some respects. Yeah, he's my favourite player, Thiago. I mean, socks down. Um, just so aware of, of everything on the pitch. He's, he's got radar. His passing's fabulous. He's got a little bit of a nasty streak in him as well, which I like. And he just, as you say, gives him a completely different dimension. And you can tell all, all the players love him as well. And, you know, that midfield now, where we're looking at the start of the season, maybe it needed a little bit of strengthening. I mean, you know, there's so many different players. And, and different players in terms of they've got different attributes as well, as you rightly say, with Thiago, etc. So it, it's a great time for Liverpool. Like when you talk about that depth, Mark, I think obviously Liverpool could never afford to lose Virgil van Dijk last season. No. But it was also all the other injuries around the midfield, around the rest of the defence that, that I guess tripped Liverpool up more than van Dijk alone would have done last season. So if, and hopefully this doesn't happen, but if there are injuries between now and the end of the season and there is a busy schedule still coming up, you do yeah. feel that that level of depth is there for them to actually cover that pretty well this time. Yeah, and you know when when you really look back at that season, and obviously all the centre backs were missing, etc. But I I think the biggest single problem was that Fabinho was taken out of midfield to go and play at the back, and basically Klopp didn't have many other options. And Fabinho's just in that position, he, he's he's been outstanding. He just cleans up anybody's mess all the time. He sits in front of you know the, the two centre backs as well, and it gives them real strength. It allows the full backs to push on all the time as we know, and uh, he's he's become a really, really key player for Liverpool. James Milner made his 800th appearance of a senior club career last night. I mean, <laughs> it's an absolutely ridiculous uh, number. Uh, the, that, uh, this late stage of, of James Milner, this, this, this stage where we're, we're still kind of talking about him potentially starting in the team. I think, was it was it David Myler on, on the show the other day actually predicted that, that Milner would actually start last night. The, to what extent do you feel that like the, the culture at the club allied with Milner's own uh, hunger to continue to succeed. To what extent is it Klopp and, and the management there? How much have they managed to get the best out of Milner over the last little while and to, to keep this going? Well, um, they've obviously got lots out of him, but I mean, it's, it's, it comes from within this and, you know, he's, he's been in the game so long. The, the, the great thing about Milner for me was when he was at, at Manchester City, he could have stayed there and earned more money, but not really play many games. And he said, no, he said, no chance. I just want to go somewhere where I want to play, which is why he signed for Liverpool. And in playing so many different positions, he's just got a great attitude to the game. Doesn't drink, I don't think. I think he lives a, a really healthy life, which is obviously why he's still playing. Um, loved by everybody. 
and he's just an absolute, you know, when all these young players are coming through, your Harvey thingies of the world and everything, and, you know, they must look at him and think, oh, my goodness, this fella's still playing, and I've just played like 10 or 15 games, whatever it is, and to reach 800 is, in this day and age is, is phenomenal. But the he takes, takes on board everything about, you know, about your diet, about the way that you live and, and stuff, and he, and he can play left-back, central midfield, left-side midfield, Right side midfield, right back if you wanted him to. So it's, it's a great advantage for Klopp. And also, he's, he's just there all the time, isn't he? And, you know, people just need to look at him and think, crikey, 800 games. That's just, as I said, that's incredible achievement. It's obviously hugely important to be able to get some players through the system, like the Harvey Elliott's of the world, because it, it mm. saves you it saves you transfer fees. But it's, Money, yeah. I, I guess also more important than that, it, it just makes sure that everybody at the club believes that they're part of it, that the youth team believes they can make it, so there's that pathway there. But I guess even more important is that when you recruit, you recruit well, and that you do, when you have that big transfer fee and you've spent the money, um, the players fit in. Luis Diaz yeah. has, has like walked into the club and looks like he's been there for three or four seasons. That's very unusual. Yeah. The only problem with Luis Diaz when he walked in the club, he, he had he was just covered in uh, Adidas, wasn't he? I don't, I don't know if you saw the picture when he met Klopp. He was covered in Adidas from head to foot. I don't think the sponsors were particularly pleased. Much have soon got that, that stuff off his back. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I was at the game. Which one was it? Uh, I can always forget now the... the the other week and when he made his debut his, his full debut and not when he came on as, as a sub and the fans took to him straight away he did a couple of things where you know he put on the right foot he plays on the left but that dribbled down on with his with his left foot got a few crosses in etc went into tackles chased back and it just seems that he, he's, he's got it straight away as, as what's expected of him but the other thing about the transfer policy if you really look at it apart from obviously Van Dyke and the goalkeeper who were, who were you know relative fortunes in, in when they signed. Most most of Liverpool and Klopp's signings have been between kind of 30 and 40 million quid. Um, there's a whole host of them, as we know. And, and so what they're really looking at, they're looking at good players already, but not, you know, great players as such. And, and what they're doing with these players is they're taking them from, you know, really good players into outstanding and world-class players. And it's, it's, it's a really good way of doing your business. And I would say... Um, apart from apart from the goalkeeper that he took on a win from 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 Germany, that's basically cost us in the Champions League final. All all the players that he signed, he's improved them all. And for a coach, basically, it, it doesn't get any better than that. He's not only improved them all; he's also as well, obviously, improved the value. And I think with the you know with with the academy and everything, as you're right to say, once once one or two are. You know, Curtis Jones is another one. It's one or two of them are coming through. Obviously, um, Trent Alexander-Arnold. It's 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 great. It's great for the coaches at that level because they go, look, this is what you can do. But it saves the club money. But also, you, what you can do as well is you can get some players who come in. Um, I mean, Nat Phillips, who came in when they were struggling for centre backs and, and did really really well. Now he's gone to Bournemouth on loan, and they'll sell him. And they'll sell him for big money. I mean, this is this is something that Arsene Wenger arguably was one of the first to do. It was that he'd, he'd, he'd bring really promising players through, play them in the first team, and then make a decision which would be, you know what, they're not actually at Champions League level, and I don't think they will be. But then people would come in to buy them, and you go, well, hold on a minute, he's played 15 games in the Premier League, and, the, and you just hike up the price. So they hike up the price, the money comes in, 
and it improves the academy even more. And it's and, and Liverpool have kind of logged on to that in the, in the last two or three years. And, you know, so, some of the sales have, have been outstanding. And there's obviously been a lot of talk about Liverpool's recruitment, their talent identification and, and how they managed to keep getting hits in the, the transfer market. But from what you're mm. saying there... It's stating the obvious here, but Jurgen Klopp is still the vital cog in all of that. He is still the guy who oh. is taking this prospect and ensuring that they do reach their potential. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, um, obviously, I've met him quite a few times, and he's what you see is what you get. Um, but I, but I do get the impression with him that you know he will wake up one one morning and just say, right, uh, I've done that. Um, and you know whatever his contract is, I just I just think he's that is that kind of person. I think he absolutely loves his job, and I think the morning that he wakes up and thinks, "Well, oh, you know, I've probably done enough, I've had enough, or or whatever," is is the day he'll, he'll probably walk away. And everyone goes, "Oh yeah, he'll go manage Germany and all that." I don't think he will actually, but that obviously remains to be seen, and hopefully that's that's years away yet. Well, we were talking about this, go on. Yeah, yeah I was literally just about to make that point with the conversation we were having earlier on. Like, do, do you think that? last season and the difficulties of last season have, I guess, given Klopp a greater appetite for this job? Yeah. Yeah. M- m- most definitely. Because he just wants to, you know, win football games as, as you want to do and as, as he needs to do. But, yeah, and you know, it's the thing about football nowadays as well, you've got to manage up. You know, the days of, the days of just managing the team and, and the results... They've all gone, so you've got to manage up. You've got, you've got to, you know, whatever, whatever the owners want. Generally, you have to try and, and give it to them. And the great thing for Liverpool is that is that FSG, who, who own the football club and have the sporting franchise, obviously in, in America, is they they know what happens in sports, big time sport, where you know you sign you sign guys and, and some don't make it, so it costs you an awful lot of money, or you can bring you know kids through from the lower ranks, and and that's a bonus. But also injuries, loss of form, all those kind of things. I mean, they're hardly ever seen the three guys who, who own FSG are hardly ever seen at the football club. But it doesn't make any difference, you know, because they, they're, they're running it from afar and then they run it extremely well. The only, the only, the only bollock they dropped, basically, excuse my French, was the, was the furlough thing when that happened. But they soon rectified it, thank goodness. But they, they've been great for Klopp, um, you know, and he obviously gets on really, really well with them. But he, he doesn't generally have that much to do with them. Um, they've got a... There's an American, Billy, who's in the kind of chief exec of the, of the club at the moment. He's a really nice fella. And he's, you know, his relationship with Klopp is, is outstanding as well. And you can see what they're doing is now. It's, just, it's a completely different football club because they're, they're, they're not just thinking of the next six months or the next 12 months. It's like 18 months, two months, and on and on and on. Um and I suppose from their point of view, one, one day they will they will probably sell the football club, but it, it will be sold for billions, not hundreds well, of millions. Well, that's the thing, right? Klopp is the goose that laid the golden egg in all of this. Cause yeah. I, and so we've, we've seen the um, transfer deficit over the last 10 years figure, the billion figure that's due in the rounds for Manchester United. But I just on, on transfer market, for the last five years, yeah. the transfer deficit that Liverpool have is almost exactly the same as who else was it there as uh, West Ham so it's 197 million for both of them right but then yeah. you look at the other clubs who who have spent more and it's like now Newcastle are ahead of them Arsenal are ahead of them Villa are ahead of them they're in the same kind of ballpark as Wolves and Brighton it's an incredible level of management that Klopp yeah. has managed to build a Champions League and 
Premier League winning squad. Everybody else is trying it, but nobody else is doing it. And like they're half the money that, or less than half the money that Man United and City have um, spent on, on deficit in that period of time. It's yeah. it's all Klopp. Like yeah, but it's can, a plan, isn't it? It's a it's it's a master plan. And um, I don't, you know, look at Manchester United and you know fabulous club and the size of it. But you look at the transfers. There's no plan, is there? I mean, I was there on. Tuesday night at, at the game, and you know, in all honesty, Bright, Brighton were better than than at Man United until obviously um, the boy got sent off for, for um, Brighton. But there's, there's no, there doesn't seem any great plan with their transfers, transfers in or transfers out. And and Liverpool, I mean, Michael Edwards, I don't know if he's actually left yet, head of recruitment or leaving, but it, supposedly his number two has been with him for however many years and knows exactly kind of how it works. But that. You know, I, I bore you with it all the time that the second most important job at any football club now in the Premier League is recruitment. Because if you get it wrong, you're in trouble. Look at Madrid, look at Barcelona um, and those kind of clubs. And, and yeah, yeah, they've got financial problems, but their recruitment's been been poor over the last few years. And it, it is absolutely the key. And that's, that's very much Klopp. And, you know, I mean... It, it's like a 24 hours a day job. I mean, I'm sure he does sleep well because obviously the, re- the results are really, really good and it makes such a difference. But all the time, you know, it's not just taking training and that's it and wave goodbye to the boys at one o'clock and at lunchtime and then, you know, nip home and have a bit of lunch and stuff. It's, it literally is 24 hours a day and, you know, it's, it's, it's tiring. Plus, the amount of media stuff these guys now have to do day in, Day out, and no, you know, if if you clock, nobody else wants to hear from his assistant, do they? No. They just want to hear, just want to hear from him. And so, but you know, he's he's he deals with absolutely everything. I just sense a little bit this year. He's not been quite as kind of open and maybe funny as as he as he used to be. But that's probably just the, the designs on his on his uh, on his time, etc. Being the manager, of, you know, very successful. Premier League club well then maybe everybody should enjoy each of these moments and not take for granted yeah. a routine 2-0 win against a brilliant Inter team and and actually think that this isn't going to last forever because you know again you look at Man United and that cycle they're in at the moment looks like it's going to be very difficult to break I, I do want to talk about Spurs briefly here with you um, Spurs net uh, transfer money is, is actually bigger than uh, Liverpool's over the last five years but uh, Antonio Conte has given an interview to Sky Italia, which obviously blew up uh, Romelu Lukaku's relationship with Chelsea before Christmas. So yeah. Conte says, this, this is just a snippet of it, the full thing's gone out tonight. What happened in January was not easy. We lost four players in January, four important players for Tottenham, and we brought in only two. So even in terms of numbers, rather than reinforce the squad, we on paper weakened it. Betancourt and Kozlewski... Ideal prospects for Spurs because Spurs are seeking young players they can develop and grow, not players who are ready. This is the issue. This is the vision and the philosophy of the club. It's inevitable that if you want to grow quicker and if you want to be competitive more rapidly, you need players with a lot of experience because they also raise the experience level at the overall team. But I repeat, I have realised now that this is the vision of the club. Is it a bit late to be realising it now? <laughs> just just slightly. Um He's a boy and he can't he doesn't, he doesn't hold back. Look, I mean, as everybody knows with Tottenham, the, the, the great thing or the, or the real, real problem was the, the stadium, which is absolutely brilliant. He's costing them fortunes. You know, you, ma- you can imagine the amount of money that they borrowed against building the stadium. And that's why, in terms of the transfer market, that, that they're particularly low. Look, I think every single player, sorry, every single manager at this level are always 
two players short. It's always, you know, go to the chairman or the chief exec. I just need these two more players, the chairman. It'll make all the difference and stuff like that. But look, I think Conte's only signed for 18 months anyway, hasn't he? So I would think, you know, if you're the football club, you're thinking just quick fix and then you, you get a new manager. But have, have they got a plan? Have they got a plan for, for when Conte goes? I would... I would probably, the way looking at them, the way they run at the moment, probably no in terms of a, a, a new manager. So it's just the football club. It's it's their problems and Conti's obviously making, because they've had a few defeats as well lately. And of course, that's always worse for the manager. But um, you just look at Tottenham, you just think perennially, if, if you know, they might get fifth and they might get sixth. But you don't look at them thinking they're going to win all sorts of trophies anytime soon. And then what happens to Harry Kane again this summer? Is, is he going this summer? So... It's just a, a football club. It's a great football club, fantastic as a stadium, a stadium. But the the inner inner machinations of the, the the their club are not particularly good. If you're Kane listening to this, and the manager is saying the vision of the club is to sign young players, improve them, well, like you know, what's the point of that? It's really to sell them on. Yeah, you're, you're thinking. Well, hang on a second. I'm I I made a big thing about trying to win trophies and. Conte came in and I, he started to oh yeah actually maybe I could stay but surely he's looking at this and going right I'm out of here now that's it I would have thought so I don't I, thought, I don't think there's anything else you can take from it we're looking at that as well so um, yeah um, it's just a just a strange thing with with, with, with Tottenham is, is I always feel sometimes that you know they think they are better than they are um, you know but but they aren't because w- what have they done? What have, what have they done in, in the last few years? Oh, all right, I mean they got to the Champions League final, didn't they? Um, but but apart from that, it's it, it's nothing. So if you came, I'm thinking end of the season. What do you do? Do you go in and, and knock on the door again and say, right, you know what, we're going nowhere. Um, I stay for an extra year. Let me go, and, and maybe this is the time when when. They will, they will let him go, but then it's a case of what you're going to do with the money and who's going to be in charge of the football club anyway. And you just look at it and you, and you can't, you cannot keep having lots of managers. It just really seriously does not work because, you know, the manager comes in, brings his players, manager gets sacked, new manager comes in, doesn't want the players of the previous manager, he buys it, he goes and gets his, you know, and it just goes on and on and on and on and it, does, it just doesn't work. If you're... Daniel Levy or Joe Lewis reading this, do you mm-hmm. think, well, actually, now that you've got it, that's great. Um, you're going to be our manager for the next couple of years. Or are you thinking, that's a bit disloyal. We need to start looking for the next manager. Uh, well, they've already ro- lost one this year. So you, you would think, you know, it, it's, you'd probably think, I would think, with the amount of people that Joe Lewis has done business with and met in his life probably thinks, well, he's had, he's had his moan. Um, let's just say to him, look, get your head down. Start winning games for the football club, and and we take it from there. Um, and Daniel Levy, well, you know, Daniel Levy runs a club, and and you know, when I, I spoke to someone who knows him quite well, and I said, "What's he like?" and he said, "Well, in terms of a deal, he wouldn't he wouldn't give you a crumb off a plate, which which is absolutely fine." But has that really worked? Um, it might have worked in terms of they might be cutting down the debt every week, but they're not really improving the football club, are they? There's also then the whole other level of 
Conte's relationship with Paratici and that was supposedly one of the reasons why Conte was brought in because of mm. the relationship that they enjoyed and like it's interesting just kind of looking back at some of the reporting that was done at the start of the window because they were linked just in an article that linked them with um, Kulosevsky who they do uh, eventually sign it was reported in Calcio Mercato that Conte was less enthusiastic than Paratici about Kulosevsky so there's probably a whole element here as well of signings that are being made that Conte isn't fully sold on on top of the fact that he feels that he hasn't got a big enough war chest. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really fair point. But then I suppose Conte's thinking, well, you know, I'll take the player anyway because, you know, we, we might be able to improve him. And yet, and it's another body, isn't it? So um, I'm just, I just, I, I think the fact that he signed, I'm pretty sure it's an 18 month contract, isn't it? Is that right? Have I mis- misread that somewhere? I just thought it was an 18 month contract. And I can't yeah, it is, yeah. Well, that, that tells you a lot, doesn't it? Which, which I think with Conte is, if, if he doesn't like it one morning, I think he'll wake up and say, you know what, boys, thanks, but but, but no thanks. And it doesn't particularly help the football club. But then they've allowed him to sign an 18-month contract. So you would hope they, they therefore, have got another plan if he walks away from it. But you would just never know. He's getting pretty well paid, Conte. They're saying 13, <laughs> mil- 13 million a year. So maybe you would expect your... 13 million a year manager to be like oh this, this club's very well run I'm I'm very proud to be working here just a little bit is there not a little bit where you're like yeah come yeah, on Antonio yeah, we pay a lot of money for you to be the, the public face of this here yeah you have, a, have a big embrace every time he sees the chief executive um, you, you you would think so but he's very much his own man as, as everybody knows Conti so you just you just don't know what's sort of going on, on between the ears what he's actually deciding to do um he came back easily enough. He had obviously been successful in the Premier League before. With Chelsea, did a, a very, very good job. But you just, he just, I just, I think with him now, he, he's, he's like, a, he's like a gun for hire that you know comes in and sorts the town out and gets rid of the bodies, etc. And, and stuff. But not necessarily he's going to, you know, buy a buy a house and stay there for five years, kind of thing. No. He does take all your money as well, though. That's the other thing. <laughs> it's like... he, well, he, he, well, absolutely. And listen, he might not even spend it, which how lucky is he? His own money, that is. Yeah, all good stuff. Great to have you with us, Mark. Thanks a million. Cheers. No worries. Mark, Pleasure. Mark Lawrence, give us some thoughts there. And the, uh, the story's overnight. It's, uh, Conte, obviously. Uh, I, I, it's hard to know, isn't it? It's hard to know exactly. We'll get John Duggan's thoughts on this. He's a, our resident Spurs fan at the moment. Mm. Like is there, is there a world in which he's actually? I understand that it's obviously there's the translation element of this, right? Which mm. I, I don't want to, uh, and it's it's written down as opposed to ah, uh, he's explaining to the Italians who don't have a clue. They're like Spurs, famous, you know, white jerseys. We see them once every three or four seasons, um, and he's like, oh, their vision is to, you know, yeah, like, I mean, I think the the warning signs were there in and around the middle of January when it became clear that Conte was not going to, to spend big. He, like, he was saying, like, I didn't sign for Spurs because they told me something about the transfer market or about the money at the club. That, that was never a condition for Antonio Conte to come in, which seems unusual because he would have studied the squad at the start and said to himself, that is not a squad that is likely to uh, qualify for the Champions League. It, it can qualify for the Champions League and there is still very much a chance that it, it, it will qualify for the Champions League. But he looked at it and said, to be sure that we're better than Manchester United, we need better players. Okay. The four players who, who left were Brian Hill, Ndombele, uh, Delhi, and Los Celso. There's a few others who went from the squad. Four important players for us. 
Yeah, and then, like, I mean... They're not important for him. Yeah. He wasn't... He wasn't impressed by any of them. Yeah. He wanted rid of them. Yeah. So is... is What's he saying? What's the point of this? That Ben Tanker and Kulisevsky are just crap. It's, it's, a, it's a screw you to the, the two lads that were brought in. I'm, I'm not sure what the story is with Ben Tanker, but... Um, as I said there, well, the, the Kuliszewski tra- was... transfer was de- is definitely shrouded in a bit of this was kind of done above my head, and maybe maybe he'll maybe he'll make a, a good player at Tottenham out of him. But I would I'd say he he's de- while he said a month ago that there was no assurances about the transfer market given to him, that doesn't mean that a month down the line he can still be frustrated about the, the actions in the, the transfer market anyway. So I'd say he knew it was going to be bad, and he didn't think it was going to be this bad. Is probably the truth of it. When it comes to recruitment. But that's, like, he's a very smart man. He's been around football a long time. You pay attention to who these guys are. You've already had conversations with them last year when this deal didn't happen. And then they get you. So you, it's not like you walked in and were like, oh, I got here and I didn't realise how bad it was. Like Rafa at Everton. I had no idea how bad it was. Like, I mean, you've been talking to them for a long, long period of time. The, the Mirror reported that his deal was worth £30 million. For 18 months that can't be right because the mail are saying it's 13 million a year yeah, which would only get you close to, to 20 million I mean you know it's only 20 million for 18 months there's a, a great quote and just kind of looking back at this press conference on the 14th of January uh, Conte was asked if he knew that Tottenham were traditionally not a big spender and he says in this moment I think I can't confirm this also because with me the club did not spend money I'm only here for two months uh, and that that was his explanation for that uh, he doesn't know whether or not Spurs are big spenders to come back to the point about Klopp right the the transfer activity for the last five years and I know he's been there a bit longer so he probably should just do it since Klopp has arrived but their net spend is remarkable it's remarkably low it, it's completely unsustainable and it suggests to me it's not about anything other than Klopp's genius that he is this kind of weird outlier that everybody else who is spending money is wasting it Except Klopp. Uh, like, and I, I do think that there are other people at Liverpool that have to take a, a bit of credit, but Klopp is definitely the one that's accelerating the growth. Yeah, some credit. Because he, so, like, uh, uh, do you think that all the players that he signed would have also been a success at no, every other club? Not at all. Not at all. That Solskjaer would have been... So maybe Guardiola would have been able to do it, but Guardiola, even at that stage, like, there are loads of players who Guardiola has spent loads of money on that have not worked out. Yeah. No, not, reasons. It, like, and and I think that Manchester United has kind of been the litmus test for this as well. The players that looked good on paper or that that looked like they'd be good signings have just been disasters. Spurs net spend according to transfer market two hundred and thirty million in the same period that Liverpool's net spend is one hundred and ninety seven million. Yeah, in that period of time, there's a significant divergence in trophies won. Now they did obviously play in a Champions League final. It was close enough. So, right, it's 8.37 this morning. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you at OTBAM. Brought to you by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with our new and improved razors. John Duggan is with us. John, good morning to you. Jared Owen, how are we doing? We'll, we'll start with the latest news and then we'll get your thoughts on... Um, Life. Yeah. Golf and Spurs. Um, well, so Liverpool, we know, are going to be in the Champions League quarterfinals unless there's a real shock at Anfield. So Roberto Firmino and Mo Salah scoring last night in that 2-0 victory. It was touch and go, Inter played well, uh, but it was substitutions that did it. Firmino coming off the bench and heading in Andy Robertson's corner for the first goal uh, within the last 15 minutes. And then Salah scoring for the eighth game in a row away from home in the Champions League. Quite uh, it's, remarkable. It's mad, isn't it? It's like, yeah. oh, can you do it in the big clutch? Uh, yeah, no, every game. I'll do it every game for you. 
and having come back from the Africa Cup of Nations and the disappointment of losing the final there, Cristiano Ronaldo has the record of 12. Uh, so Liverpool set for the last eight of the Champions League. Red Bull Salzburg won, Bayern Munich won last night. We got Rangers in Europa League action tonight against Borussia Dortmund in Germany. Celtic up against Bodo Glimt of Norway at Parkhead in the Conference League from 8 o'clock. NUI Galway, congratulations to them winning the Sigerson Cup for the first time since 2003. 12 points to 1-6 over UL in Carlo last night. We got a Fitzgibbon Cup action as well this evening. Rory McIlroy and Seamus Power in the field for the Genesis Invitational on the PGA tour that starts later at Riviera in California all the top 10 in the world are playing in it there's racing today at Clonmel the first off at a 120 so that's what's going on sports news wise have you done the Antonio Conte quotes well just if we haven't done your take on them he looks a man who doesn't seem to be enjoying his job (laughs) at Tottenham he's getting paid so much bloody money yeah, like it's it's endless bags of cash they're throwing at him. He wouldn't like day. the Saudi tour. He wouldn't enjoy Saudi Arabia um, if he was a golfer. So look, I don't know what to do uh, as a Spurs fan. Sometimes rather than just put my head under the covers and um, just go and play with my phone under the covers because it's just so depressing at times being a Spurs fan. Is there it? a possibility that a penny has dropped with him and he's going to stick around and fix it now that he knows what the rules of engagement are? I, I'm trying to see the glass half full here. The glass half full is the summer. We will know in the summer what the deal is with Tottenham and Joe Lewis, Will Joe Lewis, who is now um, a man in his 80s. He is the owner of Tottenham. Will he decide, you know what, maybe it's time to spend a bit of money here and say to Daniel Levy, give Conte what he wants. But I'm surprised at the queries about the transfer market because Paracicci is Conte's guy. These are the guys who worked together so well at Juventus 10 years ago. So the, 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 the questioning of the transfer decisions is a bit unusual for me. Um, the whole point about United and Conte was that Conte likes to work with ready-made players and getting them in and work with them. I'm not sure he is a project manager. Now, I know he was at the very start of his career, but I'm not sure if he's a guy who just wants to spend five years at a club at building them up like Pochettino did at Spurs, because that's where Spurs are right now. Like, the Wolves game was absolutely shambolic in the first 20 minutes. Completely shambolic. If you take, like, who would you keep in the Spurs team if you were going to challenge for a title? Maybe Kane and Son. That's it. Like, it really is bad at the moment. Um, now you've got the new signings there, Kulusevsky and Bentancur and all that kind of thing. But the the, the, the record signing for Spurs was Tonga Yandambele. He's already out of the club. Yeah. Record signing in well, the last couple of years. And here's the thing, though Conte's saying that we lost four important players and. Uh, no, we, no, we didn't. Exactly. We lost four players that we needed to get out of the club. Exactly. Now, to be fair to Brian Heal, is young. And Lo Celso could come back, but Deli Ali was finished at Spurs, and and Dembele wasn't putting in the shift. So it, it, the the Tottenham's recruitment has been poor for the last five years since uh, Paul Mitchell was the guy with Pochettino who was at the club as a recruiter, and they did really great business. Um, but since he left, it's not been as good. And maybe Paratici can like Paratici was the guy who was all behind Nuno. Remember Nuno didn't last very long so the jury's out on him and uh, but you, you can't argue with Conte you can't argue with somebody that has had a track record of success everywhere he's gone Juventus, Chelsea the Italian national team who had a low out when he took over them and obviously Inter Milan as we saw last night some of the remnants of his team at Inter Milan playing so well against Liverpool so he just has to be backed but does he have got the stomach for it or is Tottenham just going to get him like everybody else it seems to get I see a Spurs manager pass the parcel in our futures oh that's a good one Again, you've given me two good ideas there. And also a listener got in touch with the past the parcel around as well during the week. So that is that is that done. Um, like, I mean, when, when it comes to recruitment in general recently, like, I guess it kind of plays into your point there about Klopp. I mean, the 
expectation at this point is when a big money signing is made or when a club is spending big money, the vast majority of those players are going to fail or that they're not going to live up to the hype unless it's Liverpool who are doing the business for them at the moment. Or City. Or, or like, I mean, the top, so the biggest fees involving a Premier League side, the biggest record Premier League signing of all time is, is Jack Grealish. So, like, I mean, that, that's the, the, the top one. Chelsea then uh, signing Romelu Lukaku in second place. And it's funny, with Grealish, he's, on, he's only in the fringe of the city. Exactly. And he so, hasn't made that much of an impact. But the, the big signing that they needed to make was Diaz, and they made, they made that signing last season. And then the third. Uh, the third highest fee paid by a Premier League club was Paul Pogba from Manchester United. So the top three straight away, like, I mean, Grealish will possibly come good at some point. Lukaku has done his uh, Sky Sport Italia job on, on Chelsea already. They're not having a great season and, and Paul Pogba has been well publicised. Uh, no, so, no surprise that it's Manchester United in fourth and fifth as well, Harry Maguire in at number four. So like, when, when these, these, when you're looking at, Thatcher as a sort of what's the net spend to gauge how active somebody's been in the transfer market it is nowhere near uh, being correlated to success or transfer market success big money does not equal success right now it is it, it is often times actually just spells disaster for a club well Tottenham's success under Pochettino was like Deli Ali from Milton Keynes Harry Kane was a, an academy player who was on loan at so many clubs, and then you had the lads coming in from Ajax like Ericsson and the, and the two Belgian defenders, Vertonghen and Alderweireld. So it wasn't that they were breaking the bank back then. Um, they wasted the bail money, and the bail money was wasted before they actually started uh, to progress under Pochettino. So um, that's that's today's Tottenham. Let's bulletin. Let's also talk about money yeah, yeah. and golf and Saudi Arabia. So this is just a quick update and an explainer about where we are at the moment. It's been in the news. It looks like there's been a concerted effort or maybe it's just bubbling up in the questions in the press conferences but Rory McIlroy has been unbelievably strong about it John Ram has been very strong about it on the other side there are some players who are like you're offering me how much money? Well we, we, a lot more money than they could probably ever need um, the Saudi Arabian government we know want a sports wash and they've done that at Newcastle and they have got the Formula 1 race there now and they want to get into golf in a big way it's funny enough they had a partnership with the European Tour uh, which didn't really work out so that Saudi International Tournament was under the European Tour's auspices now it's not and now you have a split and Greg Norman is the public face of this Greg Norman the two-time Open champion people may remember in the mid-90s wanted to set up a world tour of golf, fell flat on his face, got Rupert Murdoch, pulled the plug at the last minute for Fox TV to, to be involved in that. But he's back, Greg Norman, and he's the public face. And they've cleverly bought their way with a 300 million quid investment in the Asian tour. And the Asian tour has world ranking points. Harold Varner, who won that Saudi tournament a couple of weeks ago, well, with Shane Larry was at, and a lot of other hosts of top names were at, including Phil Mickelson. Um, Varner's now into the top 50 in the world, so he can get into the Masters if he stays there. So that's a very clever piece of um, business that they've done to get into the Asian Tour. They want to have this breakaway league. Uh, we're at the stage where I think that it's okay at the moment because ultimately you've got the top 10 players playing in California this week in the world. And Rory came out of it. We're going to hear from him now. But just before we do that, let's hear from the former Masters champion, the Australian Adam Scott, on, who was asked about the source of this uh, money for this breakaway league. I think it's a bigger discussion than just a quick quote from me up here, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I, I can understand, obviously, that, that angle. You know, I think you can argue both sides of lots of things. 
But at the end of the day, I think my general feeling on this at the moment is that it's only a positive thing for professional golfers at the moment that there's interest and money coming into the sport and it's also somewhat forced the PGA Tour to put more money into the professional golfers and we're seeing that all around the world too they've put money into the European Tour the uh, Live Golf LIV Golf Investments has put money into the Asian Tour so at the moment that's good for strengthening the professional game and you know how everything else pans out I don't know but at the moment I think it's good that these things are happening for golf professionals I don't know guys you thought of that but uh, didn't really leave me with a lot of warm feelings um, just to, to explain work us through your feelings there John uh, well I, my feelings are more aligned with what Rory McIlroy said and this is quite a hilarious uh, extract from his press conference as it relates to the much talked about Super League or whatever we shouldn't describe it as um, you've made your position quite clear not so Super League <laughs> Elaborate, please. No. <laughs> is there is there any part of you that is a tired of talking about it? Oh, I'm so still... sick of it. Okay. <laughs> so I'm not sure if I have a follow now, but <laughs> is there is there any part of you as just being in the position you're in that is the least bit curious to see who's going to be the first? Um, curious. Uh, I don't know if I'm curious, but I'm. Uh, yeah, look, I guess I'm intrigued that that who would. Certainly for the younger guys, like it just seems like just a just a massive risk and a massive. I just don't see. I can maybe make sense of it for the guys that are getting into the the, the latter stages of their career for sure, um, but I don't think that's what a rival golf league is really want to. You know, that's not what they're going to want, is it? I mean, they don't want some sort of league that's like a pre-champions tour. You know, it's so I don't know. Yeah, like I, I guess it's. I understand the financial part of it for guys that are later on in their career, but I certainly don't like. And you look at the people that have already said no. Ram, number one in the world. Colin Morikawa, myself. Like, I mean, you've got the top players in the world are saying no. So, I mean, that has to tell you something. It might be the case that Phil Mickelson and Bryson DeChambeau do eventually jump ship and go with this tour, although that has not been confirmed. It could be the case that Lee Westwood, Adam Scott, Ian Poulter are involved in this. But ultimately, if the top players in the world are not involved in it, it's going to be a bit like that at North American Football League you had in the mid-80s, which Donald Trump was behind, that tried to get traction but ultimately didn't in competition with the NFL. Um, so that's where I think that this will, will probably end up. But it's funny that Kramer Hickok, who's a PGA Tour pro, was on a podcast yesterday. I don't know about the, the complete accuracy of this, but this is what he said. You're going to see a lot of big names jump over there. I think there's already been 17 guys that have jumped over, and I can't say who they are, but there's going to be some big names going over there on the Stripe Show podcast. Look, from what I've heard, the money's very, very appealing. You're only going to have 12 to 14 events. These events are going to have purses. You're not going to have to deal with missing a cut anymore. There's only going to be 40 players, and 10 of those 14 events will be in the 
the States. Signing bonuses, huge, huge purses. It's going to be very appealing for some of these guys. Yeah, you'll see big names for sure. I think the PGA Tour probably just um, have a nuclear option. that They had to get a dispensation to play in the Saudi tournament a couple of weeks ago, and they'll eventually say, guys, you know, you're going to be cut off from our tour or the GP World Tour if you get involved. In Hard this. to do that legally, you know, like yeah. freedom of movement, all that kind of stuff. The, the Bosman ruling, like that same labour law surely exists within American. American sports do have certain derogations, like you know the whole draft system all that kind of um, lockdown contracts one way only stuff that maybe there is some way but that would involve the tour paying and then employing the players so I think there's definitely from Adam Scott's perspective the leverage that Saudi has given them versus the PGA Tour that's one thing it didn't sound like that was the only thing he was talking about it sounded like he's considering heading being one of the major names who goes there and I, I, I know the point that Rory's making but like golf is a 52 week a year sport right so there are weeks when Marikawa McElroy and Ram wouldn't be in a field for whatever reason because their, their schedules are like you know four weeks out from the Masters they're all in it three weeks out they're not in it because they're, they're all doing a week's practice but that happens right Yeah. on those weeks if Bryson Adam Scott uh, Ian Poulter Lee Westwood and a few others are playing a tournament in America in American time slots like that's on TV because they've decided to give it free to a rival channel like there's there's a way you build this uh, that, that makes that makes the product viable now bear in mind it's going to lose a load of money but that doesn't matter because the money's being printed so you might make the product viable but will it be um, diluted in that long, almost turned out like darts in the 90s where you have two competing tours. Or darts now where everybody watches both, it seems. I don't watch it. Uh, like the, the first darts is awful. The, the BBC darts or whatever the, the leg side stuff. But I'd say just, it does much bigger numbers than yeah, Sky that's, darts. That, but that's because it's on terrestrial TV. If Jerry Gilroy and Owen Sheehan and John Duggan went on the BBC, we'd have 10 million viewers. No, we wouldn't. But thank you. Um, well, but um, if, if they were to do a deal with the... Uh, if they would put that golf on, like... The sponsors decide, yeah, I don't care. I'm getting, like, cheap access to a mass audience here who have some interest in sport a passing interest uh, just to the Bryson thing we should just uh, talk about so the allegation the, the 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 leaks suggest that Bryson has been offered 135 million dollars to join now his body is currently going through some issues it's almost as if you can't sustain that level of training and uh, you know we, we saw a tiger the injuries that he had he's out injured at the moment he withdrew from the Saudi Open or whatever it was that he was at uh, after the second round so um, it's reported this report came out as well that the the Saudi Golf League was prepared to spend 1.5 billion pounds yeah 2 billion dollars that's right yeah so 135 million to Bryson is like it's not jump change for, no it's for, not in that context but it's like it's jump change for the owners going get Bryson get a couple of other guys you know, Bryson does his thing. We get the barstool sports people behind us. You know, it's like it's 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 very doable. It does dilute it. It's it's doable, but it, sport is about competition. And sport is about prestige, and golf is all about like wearing that green jacket and not being able to buy it, and not being able to dine in that locker room unless you're a champion or winning the claret jug and all these kind of things. And maybe golf's it, about money for a lot of people. It, it is it's not it, about the green jacket. But, but, it's about how much money they can make. Well, if, if if that's the case, then they're not. That's why the likes of a lot of these players we're talking about are over the hill. And they're not going to be winning green jackets, or and they're not going to be winning major championships. So, to me, sport and golf—maybe it is what it is—but 
uh, to quote Tiger Woods, but it should be uh, like as Mike Lorenzo Vera was saying yesterday. Why don't they give the the money to the pe- poor people in Yemen? You know, because they don't care about the poor people in Yemen. Yeah. And, but it, it, it just shows how uh, much of a bubble these people live in and have covered golf tournaments and they're so polite and they're so genteel and it, to me like the, the, the argument that's been made in some of the articles I've read that golf is not exciting golf is the most exciting sport you could watch and there's nothing wrong with the game whatsoever if you I watched six hours of it last week it was unbelievably exciting mm. and it'll be that television audience that'll be very interesting will you be able to create enough of a movement around a new Set of set of tournaments to, to to justify it. Will there be millions of people watching it on a weekend? Like I, th- I think there's a. I don't think it's an absurd possibility that that actually does happen. And if it does happen on on down weeks for the PGA or when players are practicing, I think it. I think it becomes very uh, realistic and like a, a very real part of the calendar. Like I mean, th- there's obviously a reason why people are coming out against this as well. And like I mean, it, it isn't just to do with the whole moral compass pointing in the right direction you'd suspect it's probably because they suspected this thing is not going to succeed and it's not worth that like I mean John Ram coming out and saying like I mean by the way this is like one of the, the, the best ways to structure a sentence I've ever heard I'm pledging my fealty to the PGA Tour like I mean there's a reason why he's coming out and pledging his fealty like there, it's not just to do with the fact that he is disgusted by the Saudi Arabian regime you'd suspect or about where his money's going to come from there is a real sense of legitimacy going on here and they believe they're putting their chips on black here which is this thing's not going to work out I, I think that some of them are definitely interested in the history and the, at that point John was making about the prestige like McElroy was talking about the money you, you were reading those comments to us a little bit earlier on and he was kind of saying what difference he says, I'm in a better way uh, financially than I was a decade ago and my life is no different. I still use the same three, four rooms in my house. I just don't see the value in tarnishing a reputation for extra millions. So for him, tarnishing a reputation is not about, like, uh, ruining, it seems, is not about ruining the prestige of the, the Open or being kicked out of the Masters. It's like, it's actually, it seems like he is clued into what's going on. That's, that's certainly what he's saying. If he felt that there was... Uh, I don't know I, I just think that if you could like fast forward into time and all of a sudden this becomes a very legitimised tour which is quite lucrative and and not only lucrative in a financial sense but also it, it has a, a whole share of the pie when it comes to the competitive nature of professional golf I, I just wonder would there be more people hopping on board I, I like I think I think time will tell and like I mean I, when I said it I'm not necessarily talking just about Rory McIlroy here like I'm sure he's he's thought about this in, in, in a good way but wasn't the, the isn't isn't the, the thing that they're going to do is play the tournament in America so you don't actually have to go to Saudi well, they're, they're going to have one in England and it won't uh, it won't feel one, like you're you're uh, propping up the regime or anything and they can't say because the, the, there's a PGA Tour event at the moment in Asia uh, the CIMB Classic and the European Tour for years had tournaments in Malaysia and in Australia so they can't say well you know you're going to be part of the Asian Tour or the Saudi Tour when, you, when they've already done that themselves um, the, the, therefore the PGA Tour's response and Jay Monaghan was threatening the, the nuclear option and, and as you say maybe he might, he might not be allowed to but um, getting into the Asian Tour has been a clever piece of work because generally the Open Championship would always have had uh, spots for Asian Tour players like Todd Hamilton in 2004 won the Open Championship he played mainly on the Asian Tour uh, so that that is a very clever piece of investment from Greg Norman and, and, and uh, the people behind the Saudi backed uh, league but I just I just for the sake of competitiveness like this week is what it's all about the top 10 players in the world in the one tournament and I know he says 50 weeks of the year uh, but many, maybe they might play about 20 to 30 events only a year anyway for their own heads yeah
All right. All right. John, good stuff. Thanks very much for that. Uh, John, we'll be back with you on Saturday afternoons here live on Off The Ball on News Talk. It is 8.57. If uh, you want to get in touch with us, you can leave a comment in the YouTube stream. Bobby Dwyer says, I'm back. Our resident Spurs fan. Uh, he's only trying to force Daniel Levy's hand. Levy knows he's on his last chance with the fans and Conte knows this. Conte's on 20 million a year. No danger of him walking. He knows what he's doing. Also, this Kane talk needs to stop. It's getting boring at this stage. Every summer since 2015 there's been talk of him leaving and he's still there. In fairness, Bobby, you'd have to say that most of the talk came from the Harry Kane camp last year. That That's where that originated. The, oh, I'm just taking an extra long holiday. I have sore shins. Uh, well, I couldn't find the keys to get to the car to training so we'll see we'll see what happens um, uh, Trevor Halloran says the home nations make no money out of the Lions tour who are the who are the home nations what what is this home nations you're talking about Trevor can you text back in there and explain what you're talking about it keeps the southern hemisphere unions topped up why are we funding them we the home nations funding the southern hemisphere it's a good question why are the home nations funding them Trevor good man uh, Peter says Michael Edwards is a huge part of the way Liverpool get players he also structures transfers where it's never money up front so we'll see if they can survive we'll, uh, we'll wait and see and then the last one is Liverpool's ability to sell players over the last couple of years has been remarkable Coutinho, Solanke and others sold for ridiculous sums of money says Mark Dunning so it's all a fair point right uh, Stephen Kisby Green is with us this morning to give us his team of the tournament in the Six Nations so far he's he's an innocent man a, a bystander in all this although we hope we've managed to make him a little bit biased towards Ireland or maybe maybe we've poisoned him against Ireland by making him listen to this show every day Stephen good morning to you how are you? Morning Jim morning Ryan. how's things? Where the hell are you? Uh, I'm in the lovely Drakensberg in the middle of in the middle of South Africa enjoying my my, my holiday from uh, from you guys <laughs> uh, Where is where is Drakensberg? So it's Sort of bordering Kuzunu Natal and Lesotho, um, so it's just—it's basically the biggest mountain range in southern Africa. Wow, um, it looks amazing. I've got Google Images here. Oh my god! Oh, sorry, it's up. <laughs> Holy crap! Yeah, no, uh, unfortunately, um, I've brought Dublin weather with me, so you guys can't see it this morning. But um, I took some photos last night that I think Tom, Tommy's putting on the on, on the screen now. So uh, that's roughly what I've been looking at uh, this week. And um, what's the wildlife like? Uh. Depending on where you go, it's, it can be. Like, there's no lions or mountain lions that are going to take you out on, on your hikes. That's what you're asking. It's um, a lot of baboons, which can be a little bit frightening if you come across one um, mid-hike. But um, uh, some nice uh, birds of prey, some buck if you're lucky enough to spot them in the in the in the felt. It's whatever you'd imagine um, South African wildlife to be. You can find it roughly here. No big predators in the berg, but um, you, you, I wouldn't advise going uh, hiking alone if you don't know what what you're doing. Okay, of. okay. And sorry, I, this is not what we were supposed to talk about. But how big is the baboon <laughs> when you come across them? Uh, like, wh- why are they scary? Because they seem to have quite big teeth. They have huge teeth and they do not back down. It's it, they they can actually rip your throat out if you, if, if you're not too too careful. But the, all you need to do is make yourself seem big and don't sort of back down, and you, they'll usually run away. That's easy but for you. <laughs> I say I say don't, don't take this as survival guide like <laughs> verbatim because I'm I, I'm I am a city a city boy at heart. <laughs> that's a that's a, that's a pretty good guide for life right there, Stephen. I think make yourself big. <laughs> yeah. To make uh, yourself big. Not something the Irish can do too too often. No. Oh yeah. Shots fired. Uh, <laughs> so you've you've been um, 
keeping an eye on, on the Six Nations so far, and, and you've decided to pick your team of the Six We've tasked you with picking your team of the Six Nations so far. Was this relatively straightforward and easy? What were your criteria? Well, so the criteria was trying to get a, a player from each team in the starting 15. It's more difficult than it sounds, particularly when you got the likes of Italy in your in in, in, the, in the tournament. So, I've unfortunately failed at putting an Italian in, in, the, in the starting fifteen. But uh, I think you can forgive me for that one. Um, the players themselves need to have played at least seventy minutes. Obviously, if there's something particular, if there's somebody particularly exceptional after fifty, I could make an exception. But thankfully, nobody really stood out more that played less than seventy minutes. Um, I also didn't feel the need to. Like hone in on somebody's uh, position that they've played in the first two rounds. Uh, if they if they're capable of playing another position, and I wanted to move them there, I did feel a little bit like it was my prerogative to do so. I mean, it is my team after all. And then I wasn't going to rate too highly anybody's anybody's performance against Italy because this is arguably one of the worst Italian sides we've ever seen in in the professional era. So a very strong performance against Italy would be likening to an average performance against the rest of them. Okay, that's fair enough. And it is early and we'll obviously be able to revisit this after rounds four maybe and at the end. So um, was there anybody specifically you had in mind when you uh, invented the criteria of I'm going to move players to a position if there are too many good players in that position? Who are you thinking of? I was actually thinking of where I was going to put Tyke Byrne because he, in my opinion, is not a, he's not a lock. I, I think he's firmly suited to to a to a flank. Um, he's built in the mold of a Peter Steff toy in my book, and I think I wanted to move him to seven. But yeah, I'm I'm doing it the South African way, not the not the Irish way. Um, I wanted to move him to seven, but then obviously Josh van der Fleer has also been playing phenomenal rugby, so I didn't actually end up moving him. But then I also. Uh, was looking at the at the wingers. Um, some some wingers couldn't I, I, you couldn't ignore, which I'll get, which obviously I'll get to. Can we can we, uh, hang, so, can we just hang on on Tyburn for a minute? So yeah, uh, in this part of the world, I have never heard anybody ever talk about him as a seven. There's been talk of him plenty of so he's played plenty of, of six, and that was they get him into the team as a six, and then oh he's not big enough for a uh, second row, but actually he's playing well enough now to be in the second row. Um, in South Africa, would you consider him in a seven role? Is that what you're telling us? That you so would look at him so and go, uh, yeah, he's a seven. What? I, th- I think it's more to do with we we, sw- we swap open side and blind side flankers around pretty much. Okay. Um, so, so, so an, an Irish six is a South African seven and a South African seven is, oh, a South African six is an Irish seven, basically. What, why? What's, what's, what, what's, what's, what's the reason for that? Uh, the sink, the water goes down the sink different directions. That's direction. what I was thinking, yeah. Probably dyslexia or something, I don't know. But uh, it, it's, it, it, for me, it seems odd to see him Ambi- ambidextrous jersey. It's ambidextrous. Yes. That's it. That's, yeah. yeah. I mean, you look at him and you think, I can't see him wearing the same jersey as a Sia Khaleesi, but I can see him wearing the same jersey as a Peter Steff Okay, okay. So, yeah, okay. So if, if they came up to the Northern Hemisphere, they were playing the opposite side, obviously, as well. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it's a, if, 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 whoever's deciding um, exactly what number they're on the back, you can change the the two flanks around if you want. But uh, this is the way I'm I'm but, setting it up. But the roles aren't the the, the responsibilities and the roles because it, it, it you know is an open side flanker the the job different in South African traditionally. I wouldn't strictly say so. It depends on the actual player themselves um, and the balance of the team. So, for example, at the moment, South Africa's 
hookers do most of the 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 the, the, the jackling over the ball. So uh, so Khaleesi and Smith, who played most of um, the November series, wouldn't worry too much about going over the breakdown as much as securing the breakdown and um, securing the ball, like South African ball, and actually being being physical members of the of the of the breakdown as opposed to jackling. So. It, so that South Africans don't really fit too much into the this uh, bl- blind side needs to be on the ball all the time and needs to hassle the okay. the the fly off etc cetera, etc. Cetera. It's more um, based on the on the balance of the team. Okay. Oh, that that all makes sense. Let Let's get into the team itself. So the best forwards, you've gone with Andrew Porter, Jamie George, Tyg Furlong, Adam Beard, Tyg Byrne at five, Hamish Watson at six, Van der Fleer at seven. And Gregory Aldrit at eight. So not a lot of Frenchies. No. Which is, and you know, they've, 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 in fairness, they played Italy. It's hard to be impressive. But they did batter us. So th- this is where a lot of the controversy is going to come in. I went heavily against the, the French in, in, the, in the fourth purely because they're too... Physical and one-dimensional, which from a South African sounds hilarious, probably sounds hilarious. Um, Andrew Porter and and Tyke Furlong, we know exactly how brilliant they are. Granted, they weren't; they were a little bit pushed back in the scrums and against against the French. But it's they, they've proven what modern-day props can and should be about, and that not just being about the set piece, but also what you can do off the ball or, or away from the from the set piece, and with ball in hand, and defensively, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the French, at the moment, they seem to be more up the guts, physical. I'm just going to ball carry in that, and one one dimensional, one out runners. Not exactly what I'm looking for in a dynamic modern-day Six Nations 15. The, the- the, the props, Stephen, I mean, um, there's been, I think you're, you're picking Andrew Porter and Ty Furlong as the, the best props in the Six Nations. I think Gordon Darcy says that they're possibly some of the best in the world. Jer said on the show on Monday that, you know, it's okay that we were talking rubbish, putting Porter and Furlong into that sort of uh, category. No. The best front row in the world. No. You don't get a special prize for being the best front row in the world after a couple of games. Yeah. There's no, like, there's no silver medal handed out for that. What, what, what's your idea of, of, the, of Ireland's props in a global context? Where, where do they rank? Ah. Uh, I'd argue that they're all four of them actually of the of the, the, the starting and, and reserves. I would honestly argue probably second to third best behind South Africa and New Zealand. Which whichever one you want to put it at, at first, you can. I would put, I would argue the likes of the South African front row in general is the best front row in the world, and we don't know which one is which one of the two is our starting front row between the bomb squad and the, the start the, the starting one because we and the other bomb squad, so yeah, exactly. Um, so we like, need to calm yeah. down. That's what you're, that's what you're saying. Calm well, the f also, down, everybody. I also am, I, I, I am sure that we're playing Tyke Furlong in the wrong in the wrong position. He's not a prop. He's a he's a fly off. <laughs> All he needs to do is learn is learn some some kicking from Tyke Byrne, and he will make the perfect fly off for for Ireland against Italy. I think his uh, his kicking would actually be better than Tyke Byrne's uh, if we were to I don't, give him the opportunity. That that fifty twenty two uh, begs to differ. <laughs> well, that was a pretty sensational slash fluke uh, fluky <laughs> kick. <laughs> Swing a leg at it and see what happens. Like, oh look, that, that was just worked out. It was one of the best kicks that we've seen all year. Uh, okay, so um, sorry, just to remind me, who your hooker was? 
A hooker was Jamie George, and then the backup was another Englishman, and I'll get to, the, to, to Luke Cowan Dickey in a minute. Um, George, granted, he only played he played the most of his most of his Six Nations so far against Italy. Scored two tries and has been arguably the most consistent hooker for Eng- for England in a very long time. I don't know. I don't know why Eddie Jones puts him on the bench more often than he, than he starts him because I genuinely think Jamie George is is the best hooker in in England at the moment. Um, I've chosen Luke Cowan Dickey with the caveat that he has to be wearing a Scottish jersey because he definitely is not the best player for England. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, you picked Adam Beard. That was a bit. Um, you found that was a bit surprising to you. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised. I mean, I think we were all a little bit shocked when he was called into the, the Lions squad last year. Um, I, I was a little bit amused by it as a South African, thinking that uh, this random Welshman is going to come in and uh, do anything against South Africa. And then his mall defense was absolutely amazing against the, the, the box. And since then, he's actually grown into a much more well-rounded lock. He's got the, the, the line-out skills that, um, akin to an Elwyn Jones. Obviously, he's a long way away from that from from that level, but he's you can see where where the influence has come in and how he's building onto it. And then I also think defensively as a leader, he's he's developed that, those skills to help the, the, the Welsh sort of defensive system become a little bit more structured. And he's putting in those those big hits that you wouldn't expect. I do think he is suffering a little bit from the similar thing that James Ryan has been suffering from recently, and that is he's lacking a bit of physicality, and particularly with, with, with his ball carries. And that's something that he needs to work on himself and, and James Ryan a little bit, because um, obviously we, we, we've discussed that at length with Ryan in, in Six Nations games against the French, in um, Champions Cup games against the French opposition as well. It's it's not Beard and Ryan both need to just bulk up a little bit more if, if, to make it a, a fully internationally. But so far, I think Beard has been the the standout um, lock for me. Is that the, at, at least from at least from Wales? From Wales. Is that the sound of a bird warning you that there's a baboon coming? Or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that is a, that is a famous hardy uh, It's the most irritating bird on the planet. They, they usually sit outside your windows at six a.m. and do that for like twenty minutes. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, it sounds a, a little bit like the Vivazellas, I've got to say. But let's let's move on to the backs because we're, we're we're we we spent too long talking about the wildlife, but it was very interesting. So look, the backs you've got Dupont at nine, Entomac at ten. I don't think anybody's going to quibble with that. Mac Hansen is 11, uh, Moifin is 12, Fiku is 13, Villiers 14, and Stuart Hogg is 15. So uh, the French backs are getting all the benefit of the French pack's power, and um, they're being shooed into your team at the moment. I wouldn't say shooed in. I think they, uh, they've, they've all earned this spot purely because they are French flair out and out, and it's spectacular to watch. Um... Of, yeah, Dupont and Intermac, you can't argue with that. Um, even even though they've only played against uh, Italy and and Ireland, I do think that Irish that Irish match uh, would has has pretty much determined the winner of the Six Nations. If Ireland won it, uh, won that game, I, I think they could have won the Six Nations. As it stands now, I think France have officially won it. Um, M- uh, Morfina and and Fiku as a partnership have been 
arguably the the best um, current center partnership in the world. The, uh, individually, neither one of them are the best centers in the world by 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 a long shot. But together, the, the way they bounce off off of each other and how Fiku in particular runs those dummy lines to open up the the field for his electric wingers out wide, they they gel so well together and they punched holes in that Irish defense and as soon as you, you, you got one break that that was it that was enough for for yeah. Dupont or um Penal to to just absolutely dominate. Uh, is there was there direct fullback Jamane uh, consideration? Uh Jamane was but I think with Stuart Hogg's consistent newfound consistency because he wasn't too consistent in November his newfound consistency in the, in the pre- past two weeks even though it was a very lackluster performance by the Scotland against Wales um, Hogg has been the best thing that wasn't named Hamish Watson in Scotland um, for the past two weeks and if for nothing else um, that's that's 60 second minute what, what I thought was going to be England's match winner turned out to be Scotland's match winner when George Ford kicked a, what was going to be a 50-22 Hogg somehow managed to keep it in and I think I, me and the rest of the, the Scottish fans I was quote unquote a Scottish fan in that match um, me and the rest of the Scottish fans almost had a heart attack uh, when he he, he, did, he did that but he, he regathered it and effectively made what would have been fantastic field position for an English line-out uh, into a much more difficult field position for a line-out and subsequently the Scottish won, uh, won the ball back and put it back out so for that moment alone be effectively earning the win um, against against England obviously we can argue whether or not uh, Luke Cowan Dickey earned the win for the Scots or not but uh, th- that moment in particular Put him above Jaminet. Um, my second um, fullback was actually Hugo Keenan, uh, purely because he's been his usual superb best, and there's not really much we can argue against yeah. uh, with uh, with Keenan's performance at the moment. No, for sure. Rob, and R- Rob Carney, who? <laughs> uh, SKG, thanks very much. Uh, this is the most spectacular setting we've had for an interview in a long, long time. Um, and thanks a million. No, sure. Thanks so much, guys. Enjoy the rest of the day. We'll uh, review how this team is doing after round four. Uh, you can check out otbsports.com for the full 15 and, of course, the rationale behind it and who made the bench as well. Here's what's coming up on OTB Sports Radio today. Uh, one o'clock OTB Gold is our Lance Armstrong interview. Three o'clock is Leaders Questions with Stuart Lancaster. Our retro panel at four is Sport and Our Irish Identity. OTB Gold at six is Barry Ryan, his book The Ascent. And then the show is live tonight with Nathan from seven speaking with John Giles and all the rest that you would expect on a Thursday evening up next Gaelic football with former Donegal goalkeeper Paul Durkin OTB AM 18 minutes past nine this morning you're very welcome back to OTB AM if you've just joined us we've had a great show so far so make sure you get over to the OTB AM podcast feed and you can get the whole show there or of course you can always subscribe to uh, rugby or football or whatever it is that you're interested in on the OTB Podcast Network. Now, we're turning our attention back to Gaelic football in the ad break there, by the way. That was Pork Mahoney and Jerome Johnson who were on the Club Championship show this week, available every Wednesday on the OTB GAA stream, where thanks to AIB, our club coverage on OTB is all brought to you by AIB. The hashtag, of course, is the toughest. Um, great stuff from Pork Mahoney there talking about Ballygunner's victory. Delighted now to be joined by former Donegal footballer and Electric Ireland Stickers and Cup winner Paul Durkin with IT Sligo and his time as he takes a look back at Wednesday's Electric Ireland Stickers and Cup final. So NUIG crowned champions after a hard-fought win over UL in the teeth of an absolute storm. Annually over 7,000 students take part in the Electric Ireland GA higher education leagues and championships. Um, good morning to you. Paul, how's it going? Hey, how's it going there? How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Um, it's a real pity that this game wasn't played 
uh, in the Dome in Connacht where we would have had the opportunity to see what both sides could actually do but notwithstanding that um, uh, Clifford scores a goal and a point a goal and two points I think um, it's a penalty and two frees but he's held scoreless in the second half and in some ways that's the winning and losing of the game Yeah in fairness I suppose you know the conditions had a lot to play with that game last night um, we were out training ourselves and we, it was similar conditions and it was tough I got to see the game when I got home, but um, yeah, it was the conditions didn't make for a great game of football. But in fairness to the NUIG counter attack, fairly it it it, um, it won the game for them. Kicking twelve points yeah, under those circumstances, I suspect, is something that they'll be they will be proud of till their dying day. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it was tough conditions for hitting points, and some of the ones like. Cal Heenan coming on at the start of the second half made a huge difference and he he um you know he brought the game to them with running through the middle and was able to clip them over so it uh it set the tone in the second half for them. Um what was this year's competition like? Cuz it got overshadowed a little bit by some of the controversy around players playing um for their counties on the same day in some instances as playing uh, in the Sigurds and it, it's always it seems to me like a bit of a shame that we don't spend more time thinking and talking about the football that we see because the quality of player is second to none Yeah listen you know from my own experience in the Sigurds and you know since since I was in Sligo IT I've always kept an eye on it it's always like the speed of the football for the time of year is exceptional um, players are going out really having to go at it so yeah, it's a pity that it's it's not played, you know, under better conditions for the players, and it's it's tough on the counties as well, having to let those players go midweek for games that you're missing trainings for, you're missing, you know, they're coming back in, they're probably not getting the preparation for national league that they want themselves as players, so it's it's tough on them. But in fairness to the Sigerson, it's an exceptional competition, and you know, it is some of the best football in my in my experience that I played in. So, yeah, it's a it's a pity that we don't get to see um, the players given that it's full potential. It is an exceptional competition. Like, what would you like to see happen with the competition over the next little while to ensure it maximises that potential that it has? You know, I'm not. I, obviously, the fixtures is a is a big is a big issue in the GA, and it's something they're trying to address. But you know, if if the Sigerson could be given its own time, you know, I think county managers would be more more amicable to it and I think that's the key is that it's working with the, with what happens in the National League um, hopefully that the National League fixtures are set to suit that and maybe move to Sigerson by a bit you know, I'm not going to say it should be before Christmas or that but there's, there has to be something done there, you know to suit both sides you're working with Sligo at the moment, right? If if you weren't allowed to take the players who were playing Sigerson, one of the arguments against this is like the the counties and divisions three and four will suffer more because, you know, a big county like Dublin can afford to let three or four players, five players, whatever amount it is, go and play for a period of time. Um, would it would it be a complete disaster for teams in division three and four, or could we work something out? Yeah, I think it's a complete disaster for any team. To be honest with you, you know, it's if if you know, there's lads even in Donegal there. They've a, they quite a few lads playing in Sigerson and Letterkenny. You know, it would have a huge effect on them. Sligo. You know, there was guy two guys involved in the final last night. We we would two players that would be constantly on the pitch for ourselves, and 
you know, Nathan, uh, he's shown last night what he can do, and it's not something we would like to see here, but you know, that's not for me to say, you know, what decision they make in relation to timings, but um, I suppose it has to be, the, the consideration has to be given to trying to separate the two competitions. Yeah, that would that would ultimately be the, the yeah. best thing to do, and, and it would remove any of the difficulties and doubt that anybody has. How are things going with Sligo at the moment? Because it certainly seems like you're on the up at the moment. Uh, the, the league has started very well for you. A massive score the opening day and a good win the second day as well. Yeah, we had a, we had a great win down in Wexford. Um, Wexford were going well. You know, we've seen them they played well enough in the Burn Cup. They had a couple of good results. So they, we went down there and that was, I suppose that was the big one for ourselves, getting getting off to the start. Um, Carlo had a lot of players out against us, in fairness to them. They had a lot of guys out with, uh, you know, COVID and that. So we they were probably under strength coming up to Sligo and put up a big score, which is good to get. But we're going into a different game this weekend. You know, we're going into Ulster Champions from two years ago. So, um, Cavan look very impressive they look really physical and strong and good shape and you know from playing Cavan through the years they, they won't be happy being in Division 4 so they're they're out to, to get out of it I suppose so we'll be we'll be we'll be struggling this weekend to keep up with them Is the prospects for a team in Division 4 at the moment a little bit more exciting than they would have been a couple of years ago given the advent of the Talton Cup and maybe even next week we will have a, a new championship structure voted in at GEA Congress Yeah, no, it's going to be it'll be great, hopefully um, hopefully they take it in and I think it'll have a massive effect on the teams down the divisions, you know, and it's still the opportunity, you can't say the opportunity is not there to play at the top level every year with with the with the structure which which gives you both um and i think it's it's definitely a, it's a big improvement we were particularly interested in, in talking to you a little bit about the innovations in goalkeeping. Uh, you've obviously seen the the way that the game has gone over the last decade and a half, and the the from the the bit where uh, it was put the ball down, kick it out as far as you possibly can, to let's land it on somebody's head. To oh, now you need to be a, a centre centre back and able to uh, dribble up the field. Um, what, what, where do you where where is the game at the moment from a goalkeeping perspective, and uh, what's next in your view? I suppose you know looking at it, uh, you know, and I was chatting to a few guys up up around Donegal, and that what what is the next stage? Is I suppose they are looking now to turn outfield players into goalkeepers. So I think that's the evolution that's going to happen at underage. Um, very hard to turn a, an adult into a goalkeeper um, you know you still have to do the basics you have to be able to kick the ball correctly you know high balls shot stopping you know it's only 20% of the game but at the same time it can't be forgot because you can see from from a lot of games in the in the last year that big saves have won games so that you know it can't be a forgotten art either in that sense so yeah, I think you know what Began and Morgan are doing. It's it's you know it's probably ahead of anyone, but you know they're two very very good ball handlers, and you can see it in Rory Began when he carries the ball. He looks natural. That's that's a lot of keepers don't have that. Personally, I wouldn't have had it. I would have struggled to play like that. So it's finding them players is going to be hard, and I think um, you know it's 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 it's, it's definitely going to evolve definitely I think goalkeepers as well will need to 
to be links, you know, if, if, if teams are pressing high, that they, they become an extra player. That's that's That goes without saying. And so every keeper that steps on the field now is going to have to build the play ball. Your own playing career has a, has a really interesting perspective on all of this because I guess you're playing at the same time as Stephen Cluxon is changing the goalkeeping game, but you're also playing under one of the most innovative inter-county managers at the time. How big a conversation was there in Donegal around your own role under Jim McGuinness? Was there ever any talk about a, a greater role? You say yourself that you wouldn't be overly comfortable coming out with the ball, but, but did, did, did anything left field ever get spoken about in that dressing room? Nothing in that sense, no. I think I think he knew my limits, so he probably left it. If he put it there, I might have tried it. But um, uh, no, I think you know definitely during the, the first the first year with Jim, probably the kickout wasn't wasn't um, focused on. But as the years went on, you know, ball retention became a lot more prevalent, and you know he 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 brought in a lot of. A lot of stuff around that um, in training, which was which was good for for myself and and the team to get a greater understanding. So, yeah, in, in our experience uh, at that time, it was purely just uh, it was an evolution in the um, the kickout, really. You know, one of the things that we've seen Dublin do over the first couple of rounds of the league is have Evan Comerford press up on the opposition kickout. Is that? Just a good move in general, like is it what or what what would be the biggest potential downfall of that? And I'm talking about opposition kickouts now, so maybe the opportunity to be to be lobbed uh, from that situation obviously would be fairly minuscule. Yeah, no, you know, if you're pressing hard on a team that that are very good at getting shorts away, you're going to have to push seven eight players up into that area because you know we always say if a G- if a player can't get free from one man you know he's he's not you know he's not doing his job you know you should be able to get free on a man to man basis and get a kick away so it sometimes it takes that extra body if it has to be the keeper fair enough but i think the one thing that you see when a keeper does press out your defenders then become a lot more aware that he is out and sometimes they drop off their their players in the fear of I may have to get back here, so it has to be. It's a, it's a defensive, as a defensive pack. You have to be really brave on it. So that's the big one. Is is it's not just the keeper, you know. It's it's the six guys around you. In uh, in twenty fourteen in the Dublin game, your bombs to midfield get uh, t- tipped on, and it's like uh, it just completely. Um, the, the kick was. Your ability to deliver that kick so far allows you to kind of clear the press. Have teams counteracted that? Was that did you know that was going to work on that day as well? I think it's something we've done quite often. To be honest, you know we, you know I was blessed with the targets that were out there. You know that was Murphy tapping down a lot of them balls. Then you had an option in Neil Gallagher. So in that sense, you know there were, and Rory Cavanaugh was out around midfielder the half forward line. You know serious fielders of the ball. So. Sometimes that's not available to keepers, and it's 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 about the personnel that are out there, and you know the awareness of Murphy to tap them balls down. He was always good at it, so it was an easy target in my sense. I just you knew that it. that was what was happening. Like like had had somebody called, there will be a Ryan McHugh run off a Murphy tap down, or was it like? Yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, we got one. Lacey got a point against Kerry, and. Uh, I think a couple of years before that, the exact same move. Um, I think it was a quarter or semi-final. Um, so, 
you know, it, it was something we done a lot. It wasn't just down to Ryan. You know, he's obviously very mobile, so he was a good target. But yeah, no, lads were given the. I suppose the big thing was lads were given the license to break off it and get ahead of the ball. You know. Yeah, um, because uh, that, that part of the game, that part of the kickout is is going to be very difficult for. Um, maybe it's not maybe loaded of outfield players who become goalkeepers have big boots on them as well but it seems like it's the type of thing you need to practice and practice and practice and practice yeah it's it's something that came with a lot of S&C too with the guys you know in the gym and that and like a, prior to that my kick I probably gained 10, 10 metres on my kick in, in about two years and it was a serious you know advantage to have for myself like you could see Sean Patton at the moment, you know, when he wants, he three steps back and he can hit it 65, 70 metres. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a great asset to have in the team to get over that. And if a team presses up and the keeper's able to do that, you know, you're in danger straight away. All it takes is one break and it's a goal. There's also then this whole psychological element to playing goalkeeper now where you're essentially moving yourself up the pitch, wearing a different jersey and you see what what happens here is a lot of kind of like um, either lads coming throwing a shoulder to the goalkeeper or shouting in his ear or constantly trying to, to yap at him as he's either uh, coming up the pitch or going back towards his own goal it does seem to me and, I, and maybe I'm just kind of basing this on the likes of Niall Morgan who seems very headstrong and who seems very capable of blocking out that stuff that you do need that in that specialised position at the moment you do need to be pretty stubborn and pretty set in your ways yeah, I think it's been the case for, you know, it was a lonely place at times, you know, mm-hmm. so you had to, you had to be mentally strong, you know, and if, if you weren't coming off the pitch mentally tired, you know, you physically, you were never going to be that tired when, a, you know, as a keeper, but now possibly more so, but mentally, you know, you should be, you know, the concentration to go through the full game is a, is a big thing. And yeah, like Morgan, obviously, and, you know, it's a chip off the block to that man, you know, it, it doesn't seem to, to bother him in any way and I think you know if you're in that position you, you know you're going to get a, a bit of abuse but you know you embrace it there's a reason they're giving it to you I suppose What about from your own perspective then say for example if you were to pick one of the most famous instances your ball being kicked off your tee in 2014 how how does that affect your own mindset in that moment? Yeah no you know I suppose it was in that moment you know I that was a mistake I made I always look back the probably the biggest mistake I made was the two kickouts after it. I, I, you know, that was where the I wasn't mentally strong, you know, and probably not prepared for it. But I just kicked them aimlessly. Kerry won them, but that was more disappointing than you know. Listen, we all make mistakes, and that's it's a problem, you know, <laughs> that I have to live with. But the you know, if I am thinking back, what I would like is a better reaction to it myself, you know. But there was no mistake, obviously, with putting the ball down in the tee. At the point was there at that time. There was nothing you could have done, obviously. Um, no, no. Like I, I, I just missed kicked the ball. To be honest, mm-hmm. I think I kicked the ground slightly before. You know, it was I was I was going I was going the kick. What I was trying to do was the right kick, but just kicked the ground. You know, and listen, that's uh, these things happen. It's strange we haven't really seen that happened since I mean like I mean it, it's such a memorable moment and it seems that the game the stakes have got higher there have been other moments of cynicism a bit of skullduggery and yet I can't think of another high profile moment where a keeper has had his ball kicked off the tee in such, such a big moment it, it seems almost like a, an obvious thing to do after one person had done it 
Yeah, I, I know the, there was rule changes and that, and the, key, mm. the referees are obviously, you know, they've they've brought in new rules now in relation to shouting at keepers. Even you know, yeah. the, you know that whole it was it was farcical for a while. Learn games, you know, I was playing club games myself the last few years, and you know, like it never affected me, but it was crazy the shouting that was going on. So they have tried to. You know, put rules around that. In fairness, and referees are are being fairly strong in it, which is good. So there's a bit of, you know, it's moving the right way. Makes sense, definitely. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, I, one last question: You said it's shot stopping is twenty percent of the job. Is that like a stat that you guys have worked out, or is that a, a kind of um, in a best guess? Not to be a best guess. There's no, there's no science to that. But I suppose when you're when you're looking at getting training done. That is, you know, you're, if you have an 80 minute session, you know, you're trying to dedicate, you know, 15, 20 minutes into the, you know, the hard work shot stopping. And then, then you have to work on the, the game realistic stuff. You know, there's a lot of, you know, one on ones I wouldn't consider shot stopping. There's a lot of that on top of that, which, which is a big part of the game. Um, just your general handling. It all, it all comes, when you're coaching, it all comes into one, you know, obviously with, Trying to get the whole the holistic approach to the keeper, but at the same time, yeah, in a game, you know, you mightn't have a shot in the game yeah. on a game. So that is, it's just something we try to work to in training. You know. Yeah. No. Fair enough, Paul. Great to have you with us this morning. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Bother. Thanks, guys. Cheers. That's Paul Durkin there, ex Donegal goalkeeper, of course, a coach with Sligo at the moment, chatting to us to um, off the back of NUIG's Electric Ireland Sigerson Cup final win last night. Annually, over 7,000 students take part in the Electric Ireland GA Higher Education Leagues and Championships. A reminder, OTBAM brought to you by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette at your best face forward with their new and improved razors tomorrow morning on OTBAM. Hugo Keenan is joining Adrian and Owen. We'll hear from Vinnie Perth ahead of the new League of Ireland season and the return of the crappy quiz with a listener suggested round of what's, what is it about? Oh, it's just a, a good, there's a good pass to parcel being sent in what is from, it? from a listener. <laughs> Uh, it's not to return also it was here last week and you're going to tell me what it is aren't you yeah no tell me yeah OTB AM with Gillette put your best face forward with our new and improved razors